Podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz, and this is episode number 33, and we're coming at you live and direct from the Vibe Junkie Studios in Oakland, California. And it's been a few weeks, but I am so grateful for everybody tuning in. Episode 33 of the Upful Life Podcast is brought to you by Help From My Friends, a benefit for Crew Nation. Due to the rapid onset of COVID-19, the live music industry has suffered mightily. All events, tours, festivals remain grounded to an indefinite halt. With it went the income streams of crew and staff of touring artists everywhere. Thus far, a large percentage have been marginalized or disqualified from stimulus funds. We all miss the magic of live shows, our favorite jams, and losing ourselves in the moment. But these fine folks, they're wondering how they're going to eat, pay bills, and take care of their families. So a group of big-hearted live music fanatics like myself have coalesced to help out our friends. And we need your help. Music fans like you make a difference in the lives of the people behind the scenes. You know the crew, the ones who make the magic happen, building it from the ground up, city by city and night after night. By purchasing a limited edition poster from Help From My Friends, you're helping out these hardworking people whose lives and livelihoods are at a standstill. What poster, you say? This detailed original artwork was meticulously crafted by Mike Tallman of Ad Noise Studios. He's also a partner in Color Red Music. His poster conveys a deep gratitude for the fulfillment that live music provides to all of us. It's really a beautiful rendering. You can find it on adnoisestudios.com, upfullife.com, live for live music. Now, 100% of net proceeds from this initiative will benefit Crew Nation, an org that commits to matching every dollar raised in this campaign and distributing it equitably. Please join us in lifting up and supporting the people in the music industry most affected by this unprecedented shutdown, the crew, and let them know a little help is on the way. Please check out Help From My Friends, a benefit for Crew Nation, adnoisestudios.com, upfullife.com.
and we're back, episode 33 of the Up Full Life podcast. And I want to say large up and a huge shout out to Adam Deitch, Bobby Deitch, Denise Deitch, and Ryan Zoidis for that big uh, Lettuce and Bobby Deitch band podcast, episode 32, the Adam Deitch birthday extravaganza. Just incredible feedback from that episode, and hope everyone enjoyed those thoughtful and enlightening conversations, and has checked out Lettuce's brand new record, Resonate, which there's a feature article out uh, on Live for Live Music that I put together on the day the album came out, and I've got something dropping for Bobby Deitch's brand new work with What You Got, which just dropped on Friday, so thanks to Everybody who checked in in the aftermath of that just uh, very fulfilling experience, episode 32. And of course, you know, we'll stay on the lettuce beat uh, as we move further down the road. But we're going to turn the page to episode 33. And that's uh, a bit of a departure this time. We're going to take it in a different direction and I trust that the listeners out there will come with me for a uh, absolutely fascinating, frightening, heart-filling, inspiring ride. Uh, I wanted to start things off by stating that <clears throat> there's going to be some content discussed in this episode that is not just off the beaten path for the Up For Life podcast, but is uh, a bit dark and a somewhat graphic with regard to drug abuse, addiction, but also beautifully human stories of recovery, resilience, and rebirth. So it's no secret that for a very long time, and by that I mean over a dozen years, I struggled with a crippling addiction to pharmaceutical opiates. Um, I fighting my way from the bottom of a pill bottle for over a decade and it infected, invaded, and soiled nearly every aspect of my life for a very long time. And I am lucky to have lived through that nightmare and come out the other side having lived to tell the tale. And I am committed to doing my part to help others find their way out of the darkness as well. Um, And that's a big part of what this podcast is all about, specifically this episode. It's uh, not like we haven't talked about addiction and recovery a couple of times before, most notably with the great Jeffrey Dupuy down there in New Orleans. But uh, this is even going to take it uh, ten steps further. Uh, and I am, I am looking to be a resource and of service to folks out there that are struggling with substance abuse, be it themselves, somebody they know and love. Um, you know, we do recover. And there are different ways to skin a cat and different pathways to liberation from the prison of addiction and understanding the affliction is a huge part of that and and coming to terms with the disease itself and your own uh, relationship to substances 
is something that is it's not easy to come by so with that i'll say that uh it's an honor and a privilege to welcome dave from dopey podcast to the upful life podcast now dopey podcast is a wildly popular around the world uh, podcast about drugs addiction recovery and dumb shit and you're going to hear all about uh, dave who started Dopey with his dear friend Chris uh, four-ish years ago, and and his journey through addiction into recovery, and his creating and maintaining and leading the Dopey Nation by way of the Dopey Podcast, which has been an invaluable resource to me as I seek to better understand my affliction, even if it is four years and one month in the rearview mirror. Uh, It is a one day at a time situation that is not just a cliche, it is the real. So every day I'm diligently trying to better understand how I can uh, increase this period of abstinence between me and that particular substance. And we're trying to save as many lives as we can. And I started with my own and I'm here to help others. I don't have all the answers and frankly, neither does Dave, but I've learned a great deal from his leadership, from his perspective, from his honesty and transparency and his ability to create a community that thrives on the resilience of the human spirit and a burning desire to get better, whatever that means to them. So with that, we're going to let a little bit more of this Jane's Addiction ride out. Started you off with Slow Divers, and now we're into Then She Did. Uh, And we'll be back. I'm going to play a little bit of Dave's song, Good So Bad, and then we'll hear 100 Minutes with Dave from Dopey Podcast on the Upful Life Podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz. B gets. I know. <laughs> well, welcome to the Upful Life podcast, my friend. Where you? I, I I feel bad. I I'm walking around suburbia in the nice, quiet thing, 
and then the fucking Long Island Railroad destroys my incredible ambiance. But I'm, it's an honor for me to be on the Up for Life podcast with you, B. Uh, I uh, am a big fan of yours as uh, whenever you call into Dopey and leave me stuff, it always makes me happy and I love your contributions. So it's an honor for me to be a part of your podcast. Wow, man. That's high praise, my friend. And and I got to say, the feelings are mutual. It's an honor and a privilege to talk with you. I'm also a huge fan of yours and I feel super connected to you. I actually had a really like dopey style intro prepared and the, the railroad threw me off. I'm I, I was going to, no, no, no. Do it. Okay. Uh, I want to say that this gentleman uh, has become a force of nature in not just the recovery community, but uh, podcast listeners around the world. Uh, he's somebody that I've paid attention to for about 18 months now. I found my way to the Dopey Podcast. We'll get to that later. And in that time, uh, Dave has become just like a voice of reason, a voice of positivity, somebody who, like I said, I feel uniquely connected to for a number of symbiotic ways. And I'm not alone. There are hundreds and even thousands of us who tune in to do the Dopey Podcast every week for a dose of Dave and whatever he has planned. So. I've been hoping and angling to uh, have Dave on my show for a long time, but he's a busy guy. He puts out a podcast every week. He's got a full-time job. He's a father to two lovely little girls and uh, has a lovely partner named Linda, who we'll also talk about a little bit. So all that to say, it is indeed my honor and privilege to welcome Dave from Dopey Podcast to the Upful Life Podcast. Man, that was probably the best introduction I've ever had. So thank you. So uh, awesome. I meant every word of it, my friend. And uh, I think like the listeners to this, I, I don't obviously don't have anything near the scope or reach of you, but I think it's going to be like a fifty-fifty, where the hopefully a, a bunch of the dopey nation will find their way to this show. And I know that um, you know our affliction and and drug use and recovery is a constant topic on this podcast because we talk about music and musicians and music culture and with that sex drugs rock and roll you know the drill so we've had quite a bit of recovery talk and quite a bit of not quite dopey stories but you know some funny tales so i do think that our conversation is going to really be of note and of interest to uh both of our respective listenerships but uh I, you've been a uh You've been really an example of what's possible in this medium and the fact that it happened so organically and uh, by accident and lightning in a bottle and, of course, uh, peaks and some really deep valleys along the way. We're going to get to all that. I just want, and I'm sure you've done this a number of times on all the podcasts, um, give us the dopey cliff notes for people who are like, what the hell is a dopey podcast? You know, we'll tell them it's about drugs, addiction and dumb shit. When you're trying to break it down for the uh, the layman, as they say, how do you explain what your show is? Well, I mean, I think the first thing I say is it's about drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. But uh, and then the next thing I say is um, basically it was a podcast uh, designed to be all the stupidest, worst things that uh, I had ever done in terms of drugs, and that my friend Chris had ever done in terms of drugs. And uh, I started it with my friend Chris, who I uh, had met in rehab in Connecticut 
many years ago and he was four years or two years into recovery when we started and I was four months and he had the best drug stories that uh, I had heard and I just thought it would be entertaining to do that. So Dopey was just about like the dumbest, worst drug stories we had. And it kind of became a show about recovery because as soon as we started to tell the dumbest drug stories we had ever experienced, I was like, it sounds like we're glorifying drugs. So we should really like make it clear that we're in recovery. And then I, I always wanted it to be like the Howard Stern show. So it kind of just evolved into this conversational thing, echoing back and forth between drugs, addiction, recovery, and dumb shit. And that's, that's basically dopey, I think. Yeah, I mean, I would say that's a pretty, you know, succinct and direct, uh, you know, kind of encapsulation of what it is. Now, it was very uh, humble beginnings with you and Chris. As you said, you were four months, he was two years. So um, take us basically just through uh, the, the nascent days of Dopey, how you guys did it. Um, and, and, and when did you realize that, you know, you were onto something and people were really paying attention and, and cared? I don't think, I mean, I think it took a long time to realize that anybody was onto it. But I mean, in the first place, I was making this web series, like this dumb web series about waiting tables at Katz's Deli and Chris, and it got some attention and Chris was like, wow, you're getting a lot of attention. I'd like to get attention can I do something with you? And I was like, yeah, I'll do, I was like, sure, I'll do something. Cause Chris was really like, he was somebody I turned to because I had just gotten clean again. And if Chris could get clean time, I was like, this dude could really be of use to me. And he just had a lot of good recovery stuff. So I figured if I came up with something for him to do, we would be bound by it. And um, and I remembered I had this friend in California who had always wanted to do a podcast about drugs and drug stories. Only he wasn't a drug addict, my friend. And I was like, Chris, why don't we do a podcast together? And he was like, what's a podcast? And I was like, I'm not sure. I think it's like a radio show. I think we just talk and people listen to it. So he came to my apartment in Manhattan and... Uh, you know, I was like, just think of a couple drug stories, and I'll think of a couple drug stories, and we'll take turns. And the first one starts, and he thought it was just going to be him telling the story. But I knew there had to be, like, a lead-up, like, where you get a vibe, or else it would have been really, like, cold, I thought. So I just started making fun of Chris. And, um, and Chris is one of these people that actually, he's one of the few people that I've ever known who loves to be made fun of. And, uh, and he took it in really, like, just amazingly good humor. And it kind of just became the shtick we did. And then he told his story. And I interrupted him, like, 50 billion times. But it was really, like, interrupting him was, like, getting the chemistry of our thing going. And then we just started doing it. And uh, we did it for, I want to say we did it for a year and a half. And we had a very small audience but the audience was pretty vocal. And, um, and as soon as we heard from one person, we were like, holy shit, you know, people are listening. And we'd hear from people in Australia. And, um, and the point of the show was to, like, have fun in recovery and, uh, and, and, and other 
kind of like recovery podcasts, I just always assumed they were very preachy and proselytizing. So at the end of one episode of Dopey, I was like making a joke and I was like, so stay strong, Dopey Nation, like a joke. And all of a sudden it meant there was a Dopey Nation. And um, and we started hearing from people and getting people to send in stories from all over the world. And it, and it sort of just grew. And, uh, you know, at this point, it's, it's the biggest it's ever been, but it's still tiny is the thing. Like, 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 uh, advertisers don't really want to have anything to do with us. We just have a very, very, very vocal, loving audience. If, if that, if that, that's kind of the beginning, you know, the beginning was just us like, and, and just like kind of testing the limits of our chemistry. And, um, you know, like, it was really the, the most beautiful thing about Dopey was that I barely knew Chris when we started. And basically over the, the next three years, the podcast documented our friendship. And, uh, and, and as soon as we started Dopey, we literally talked every day. So, I mean, that's the most magical and, uh, and beautiful thing about the show. There's a lot of magical, beautiful things, but that's certainly uh, the the embryonic sort of uh, how it began, and I think that was really well articulated. I know much of what we're going to talk about, even though you've talked about it a lot, isn't exactly easy footing. So I'll just get ahead and go ahead and get away with it and say I really appreciate you being willing to revisit, you know, your your friendship and and what you built with Chris. And I, and I want to talk about who Chris was and and how you, the yin and yang thing with you and him which i gotta say i, I knew it was shtick but you, it in the early days it got on my nerves a little bit almost just like uh this sort of dynamic between you two and, but in the end it was like uh something i really grew to appreciate between the two of you and it, it was a beautiful dynamic but it, i think it's important for people to understanding how you even got to that point i want to maybe talk about you know your time uh in addiction, because like I said, we can, and I, I want to take it further back because I, I grew up in a, you know, middle-class Jewish family in a metropolitan area just outside of Philly and Cherry Hill. And I never wanted for anything and was always afforded these amazing opportunities in life, in sports and music and education. Yet I found my way to drugs and I lost a long time, you know, a, a dozen plus years, you know, at the bottom of a pill bottle, you know, and uh, it's what drew me to even find Dopey, which happened by accident. And it's also what keeps me tuning in every week and has connected me to so many people in the community is the fact that I have struggled with addiction. And I guess I'm, I'll always have to identify as an addict. I'm not in recovery or totally sober, but I just, you know, reached four years of abstinence from opiates. And uh, I think that a big part of that is is my connection to the show and the community and really to you, man. So talk us a little bit about your, your upbringing, where you came up, what you were into and, and how did you, you know, end up, you know, on heroin for so long? Well, first of all, that means a lot to me, you know, like, uh, you know, I, I think it's easy to take for granted the idea of, of, you know, dopey to a dopey listener is huge. <laughs> dopey to a non-dopey listener is like, what the fuck is that? 
so for you to say that to me, it means uh, it means a lot to me because I often just go through life like without it affecting me, you know. So I appreciate that. I grew up in Manhattan. I grew up in Chelsea. My parents were both public school teachers, and um, I had a similar um, a similar sort of upbringing that you did, where uh, it was upper middle class splendor. We lived in shitty public housing, and but it afforded us basically whatever we wanted. And I I got into a school like a very 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 special public school. I got in when I was four. And I graduated when I was 17, and the school produced a lot of like geniuses, doctors, and uh, educators, and like some famous sportscasters, and weird musical theater writers. And it was a very, very special place. And I was totally mediocre or below mediocre. And I had this group of friends who uh, made me feel safe. And whatever sort of alcoholic, addict qualities I had, I was protected from those qualities by my little group of friends. So like my drug addict didn't emerge until after I left high school. And um, I went to college, I went to Ithaca. And I was very lonely. And I had started to smoke weed. And I had started to, uh, I had when the first time I drank, I drank uh, to blackout, you know, I drank, I, I was a waiter at a summer camp. And I just drank vodka until I blacked out and and it was, it was all about my loneliness and my disconnection from myself and feeling like out of my skin, like not comfortable. So when I got to Ithaca college, I felt those things too. Only I was a musician and I was in a band and I enjoyed Bud. And I remember I, I had a very close friend who was a, who was a jazz studies major and I had met him in cultural anthropology and I had decided we needed to become stoners because like, why wouldn't we become stoners if he's a fucking jazz guitar major and uh, studying cultural anthropology? So we started smoking pot one night and I didn't stop for, I don't know, 22 years every day. And as soon as the ball got rolling, it kind of just inspired me to think of myself the way I thought of my heroes like, John Lennon or, or, and, and different heroes sort of rolled in and out or, you know, Bob Marley. I was like, this is what they did or Jack Kerouac or whatever. I was like, this is what they did. And, and as, as I did more drugs, as I did more pot, as I ate mushrooms or acid or pills or tried Coke, it was like, this is what they did. And this is what was necessary for me to become who I wanted to be. Um, Plus, it had the great benefit of letting me not be neurotic and worrying about everything and uh, and hiding, you know, behind getting high. Like, I needed to stay high. I, it medicated my neuroses. It medicated my, like, overactive imagination, my overactive paranoia, my self-hatred. Like, it just medicated all that shit. And I, I, I wound up in... Um, at SUNY Purchase, because I had basically gotten busted at Ithaca. And SUNY Purchase was like this art school. And uh, I was living with that same jazz guitar major who he got kicked out with me. And uh, his friend was in this big indie rock band. And he came up from Manhattan and he had some heroin on him. 
And I was like, sure, I'll try that. And um, it didn't suit me the first night. I wound up throwing up the whole night. But a few years later, I tried it again. And it totally did for me what I couldn't do for myself. It just made me feel like perfect. And I knew that I couldn't afford to be an addict. But over the next few years, like my career kicked in and I decided I could. And that's basically how I lost a dozen years also. You know, I lost, uh, that was probably, I was probably 23 when I got really into heroin. And I didn't stop taking it until I was 35. And I still stayed on drugs another six years. So we're talking about like 18 years of, you know, total annihilation, drug addiction. It's a miracle that I have the life I have, basically. It certainly is, man. You know, and it, a lot of what you touch on, it's funny because, you, you know, all these, how many weeks we're at with Dopey now and you're talking about your life and your family, but especially the old school sort of you're coming up. I mean, I'm from the sort of same roots, like <clears throat> you said, and we, there's just so many uh, similarities to our path that I feel just like you really are emblematic in a lot of ways, you know, of, of how I came up and, and also how I lost my way. Um, I also suffer from intense neuroses and, and, and for a while when I was younger, struggled, uh, you know, with my sense of self in social situations. So I think that's pretty commonplace. But what isn't commonplace is uh, somebody's career taking off just while their appetite for heroin engages um, I know a little bit about your career, but most of my listeners probably don't. I know that I uh, just listened to an amazing uh, clip of you on the Howard Stern show, presenting him with a, a fake award that you It was the yeah. ultimate Stern joke on Stern. Yeah. My man, J.A., that I grew up with, one of my best friends, he comes on the pod all the time. He He's about Stern like you're about Stern. And, uh, and so I understand that the, the gravity of what that was like for you. But uh, instead of just like uh, that particular incident, what was your career like? Uh, I know you moved to LA, you were in the TV business. And then like, when did it fall apart? Well, it's interesting. What what happened was really, I was getting just any kind of weird job I could get. Like my parents had put me on a, a list to get a cheap apartment in the public houses where I grew up when I was 11. So when I was 21, or 22, I got a studio apartment on 24th Street. It was $300 a month. And uh, it was big. And it was awesome. And it was like it was like the apartment of my dreams. And uh, I moved in there, and I just, like, started taking weird jobs. And a buddy of mine was a PA um, for MTV Unplugged, I think. And he, like, tripped, and he sprained his ankle or something. And, uh, and, he, and he had a job at this place called Burley Bear, and he asked me if I wanted to do it. Now, there's a piece of the story that's, like, critical just to my own, like, sort of my own, like, thinking of destiny, which was when I was in high school, like, in my high school, in that special high school, you don't graduate. You kind of graduate when you're in 11th grade. So your senior year, you do an internship. And I had gotten an internship with one of my best friends at MTV, and we spent the year, like, just trying to get on MTV, and we got on MTV, and uh, we did a couple of on-air things for them, and it was, like, this very exciting thing, and, you know, people recognized me, and it was, like, nothing, but it was very big to me, and it made me think that I could do 
anything really that I could be. I also had always wanted to be a talk show host. It was like a weird thing. Like since I was a little kid, like I would go into the kitchen and my mom would be listening to AM radio and she would listen to a show called uh, Rambling with Gambling. <laughs> this is like this guy, this talk show host called John Gambling. And it was very like middle of the road stuff, but it was so relaxing to listen to. And I was like, wow, I love what he does. And then I kind of got interested in what Regis Philbin did. And I was like, this dude just knows how to talk to people and he relaxes people. And then I discovered Howard Stern and I was like, holy shit. Because Howard Stern like grossed me out. Like I didn't know anything about him and his style grossed me out. But then when I actually listened to him, I was like, I just couldn't believe how warm he was and inviting. And I was like, I want to do something like that. So my friend sprained his ankle and he got a job at this company called Burley Bear. And Burley Bear was owned by Lorne Michaels, who owned Saturday Night Live and Broadway Video. And it was a college cable network. It was tiny, but I was 22 or 23. So it was perfect. And I walked in and the owner of the place, I don't know. He, and I didn't look like a drug addict or anything. And I was barely using. I was just a stoner. And I kind of just looked like middle-class Jewish college kid that I was. But he sits me down and he says, I know you think you've done a lot of drugs, but trust me, I've done more. And I was like, okay. And uh, his big show, it was before the Dave Chappelle movie Half-Baked had come out. And he had come out with the show called Half-Baked which was about his friend who was a stoner and he would cook food and get stoned while he would cook. And they hired me to be the PA, uh, the production assistant. And then they kind of figured out that I was the stoner. So they, they basically made me in charge of getting them weed and keeping the host high and kind of like figuring out how high he should be. And I would come out with crazy bud and they would shoot him Westchester like near where I went to school so I had tons of different bud sources and I would bring tons of bud and if he got too high I'd like buy him a sandwich or whatever and I kind of just got in with them and then they just started putting me on different shows like on the half-baked show or on like between shows and then then they let me produce like assistant produce a couple things and then I was just like let me produce something let me produce something and they had a music video show and they were like, well, you could produce the music video show and you can host it, is what they said. And I was like, great. And, and not, I mean, like, I think two million people watched it, but like it was all distributed through VHS tapes to college campuses around the country. And um, the first show I was doing, it was like the first video they wanted me to play was a video from uh, uh, KRS-One, you know, the MC from Boogie Down Productions. And I was a huge KRS-One fan. And I was like, holy shit, it's going to be, you know, or the first video we're going to play is KRS-One. And I looked in the Village Voice, and that week, KRS-One was playing at Tramps. And I was like, well, what if we interviewed him and shot a performance of his? And um, they were like, yeah, do what you want. So I, I, I hired a friend of mine, and we went down to Tramps, and we shot KRS-One, and, and I interviewed him. And it was like... He was really cool. He's an amazing, like, he's an amazing person to interview because he's warm and well-spoken. And he, like, treated me like I was important. And it made me seem like I was a good interviewer. 
And they were like, this is pretty cool, Dave. What would you want to do if you could just do whatever? And I was like, well, I'd want to do like a music magazine show. And they let me do it. And it, it turned from a video, like a music video show to a sort of music magazine show. And whoever was coming to New York, like back then there were a lot of clubs and kind of big people would play little clubs. And the fact that Lorne Michaels owned our company made it fairly easy to get people. And I managed to interview like a bunch of people that I loved. And um, as soon as I got the show, maybe six months into it, they were like, we think you're doing amazing stuff. We want to give you a contract. So they gave me a, a pretty decent contract. And as soon as they gave me the contract, I was like, I can afford to do heroin every day. But like the, the acts I got to interview, I got to interview like uh, EPMD. I interviewed uh, Beanie Man. I interviewed Bob Weir. I interviewed fucking Flaming Lips, Pavement, like uh, John Paul Jones, fucking uh, Maceo Parker, Bernie Worrell, like... Uh, it was just like crazy, you know, it was, uh, it was, and it was also like anything I wanted to do. We did like, we would go to the South by Southwest or we would, uh, I, I had to travel with Marcy's playground. It was just like, and the show was total scrubby. Like it was me and my friends from school shot everything. And it looked like, it looked like somewhere between an art film and, uh, like public access, but it was fun. And I did the Howard Stern thing. That's an absolute dream gig, man. I mean, when I think about that, first, just a little detour. Uh, uh, KRS One, the teacher. I mean, what a way to start. And I got to say, all this time I've been listening to you uh, on your show, the connections through music that we both love and and kind of defined us from all the folks you just reeled off that you know is all in my wheelhouse. I know. And, I want to impress you. <laughs> well, I do. It's not necessary. I'm thoroughly impressed. I was actually nervous for this interview. I had to go for a little stroll ahead of time to kind of get my breathing down. So I'm trying to impress you, my friend. No, don't but, worry. I'm, e I'm easily impressed. <laughs> right on. Likewise. But, uh, you know, I just wanted to ask about just a quick detour. Like, yeah. what instruments did you play as a kid and, and what was maybe some of your favorite shit? And I know you love the dead and I know you're into, like, downtown New York jam bands around the millennium. Just give us a quick detour on, like, your music journey. Um, I never play, I never could play. I mean, it's funny because like when I was 16, I couldn't play anything and you kind of think you're never going to be able to play anything. And I went with my dad and, uh, he grew up with this congressman from Queens. Uh, and, and he took us to a Met game and we were going home from the Met game and, uh, and love me do from the Beatles came on and John Lennon played the harmonica. And I was like, I bet I could play the harmonica if I really tried. So I bought a harmonica and I bought a book and I just started practicing playing harmonica. And I, and my parents let me, my parents got me a, a class at the new school in Manhattan with all these like 40 year old Jewish guys. And I learned how to play harmonica at it and I got good at it. And then in my high school, there was a, a ska band, a reggae ska band called the Percolators. And they're pretty good. And I joined that band and like my whole life changed, you know, like we rented a studio on four, we, we had a, a 24 hour, seven day a week studio, uh, on 14th street. And it was like just the best time ever. Like we opened for the whalers. We opened for all of the, uh, 
all of the ska bands in New York, Mephiscopheles, the Scofflaws, all the the north northeast big bands and stuff. And uh, it was just before ska like blew up and New York City ska in like the you know the early nineties, ninety one, ninety. It was just like a crazy time, like with skinheads slam dancing and. You know, the meatpacking district was actually packing meat. And if you went to a club down there, it wasn't like, it was like fucking shitty. And it was just warehouses, but it was like old New York. And that's, I mean, that's basically where I learned to play music. And I learned how to play guitar in college and a little bit of piano in college. And um, and then I and then I played in a soul band in college. I played in a 14-piece a soul band and I played harmonica and I sang in that band. And uh, and we would know like 50 songs and we would sell out clubs in Ithaca and it was fun. And then after that, all my music was like not really professional. It was just fun. I played in a hip hop band in Ithaca. I was a rapper in this in this fucking hip hop band with uh, two drummers, a bass player and a blind piano player. And it was good. We were good. Um, but, it, you know, I ju- last night I watched uh, the Beastie Boys documentary. And, like, if I had confidence, I think we could have done something, but I didn't have confidence, so it didn't happen. Yeah, I'm dying to see that. I saw them when they did the play version of the book and, of course, have the book. And I just want to say, I mean, but you're such a quintessential New Yorker. Like, you talk about people like uh, Michael Imperioli, who you've had on the show, or John Joseph. And I think you're in that fine tradition of just a quintessential New Yorker. So when you talk about whether it's the Beastie Boys of the Meatpacking District or the ska scene, you're just like, a, it's it's like a historical reference and, and sort of lets us know. I There's so much depth in those references is basically what I'm saying. So it helps me and hopefully some listeners kind of understand your path. And a lot of what you talked about with music on the show and just like your relationship to it and, and the type of stuff that you were exposed to. I mean, Ithaca has such an amazing reggae scene back, yeah. back then with like John Brown's body, old school, yeah. you know, so I, I feel you, man. While we're on the topic of music, um, and not to get super serious, but you had to realize it was coming. Uh, it was recently uh, your dear friend's Todd's birthday who uh, passed away uh, not that long ago, a year and a half or so. And the reason I bring up Todd first and foremost is I... I'd been around him a few times, only realized that from the, from the photographs, uh, on Dopey right. that I, and, uh, some mutual friends. I never knew him or anything, but, uh, you know, I knew who he was. And, and also, uh, it's just like the other day I was thinking about it because you mentioned it was his birthday and you were going to do the Todd shot part two episode. Yeah. And I, I knew him or knew of him because of fish. So, uh, fish a long time ago wrote a song called dirt. Trey and Tom Marshall did, and it's really about just saying goodbye to somebody deceased. And I put it on for no reason. I can't remember the last time I just voluntarily put on a fish studio cut out of nowhere, but I did for Todd and I had a really good cry. And, and that should be a testament to how you've memorialized him, uh, how you've used him as a cautionary tale, an example of, of, you know, the inherent good in people, even when they're struggling with addiction. And there's such, amazing lessons and like humanity and understanding of not just affliction, but just like relationships and friendship in you and Todd. So I want to just honor him for a second there. And I know he's so crucial to your journey with drugs. So before we get into your relationship with your uh, co-host, Chris, um, who was Todd to you and, and, 
And just maybe a couple reflections, whether you've set them on the show or not, for, for the folks at home. Because I bet a, a handful of folks that listen to this that I know from the fish community probably knew him too. Todd, Todd was uh, one of my favorite people I ever met. He was, uh, he was just, uh, he was like a classic sort of like new school hippie stoner. I met him in 92 and it was like probably before he became a new school hippie stoner. He was just some suburban kid from Clifton park. And, uh, he liked, he loved our soul band. You know, we had this soul band. It was like the blues brothers kind of thing. You know, in retrospect, it was probably very corny, but it was a lot of fun. And, um, he loved our band, you know, and and our band had like backup singers in it that were kind of hot and he loved these girls. So he would go to every show and he was a stoner and I had just started smoking a bunch of weed and, um, and he was like quintessential hippie suburban kid who said things like uh, me being from New York, like from Manhattan, I was too cool for school with Todd's shit. But at the same time, I loved it. And I was super jealous of the way he spoke and the dumb shit he would say. And, and I was just like totally fell in love with it. And, um, and, and we started just by selling weed together and it turned into like, we would trip all the time together and we would listen to music and I would make fun of him and he, you know, and I was a big nerd. So he would, I was like, he was way cooler than me, but I acted like I was way cooler than him. And, um, we just had this amazing friendship and, um, that was the, the beautiful part. And then the, the underside of it was we were both we were both addicts, you know, like hardcore drug addicts. And uh, even though we didn't know it at the time, you know, we wouldn't know it for years and years and years. But um, basically, we just went down this path and it started in Ithaca and uh, we stayed in touch. And, and we probably stayed in touch because we were both so committed to being fucked up. Like we lived to not to, for oblivion. Like we would talk about like late night because wherever we, whatever we did that night at late night, we would smoke everything we have and take everything we had. And he, and we wound up like going in on a bunch of sheets of acid and he wound up getting arrested in Ithaca and getting kicked out after I got kicked out. And then like, we still like, we went to Amsterdam together. And then, um, I had this girlfriend who, uh, who cheated on me and I was living at that apartment in Manhattan and, uh, and me and Todd were talking all the time and he always wanted to come down. And I was like, why don't you just move in with me? And as long as you buy the drugs, I'll pay for rent. So that was our arrangement. And he moved into my apartment on 24th Street and uh, he started delivering weed for one of these weed delivery services. And and I started delivering weed for one of these weed delivery services and we would pinch all the boxes of weed. And, you know, and then he started to get really into coke, which I was never that into. And, um, and we found, um, a delivery service that delivered Coke and, uh, it turned out they delivered everything. They delivered ecstasy, Coke, heroin, GHB, they delivered everything. And I was working for that video company and I went away to shoot a talk show in Michigan. And when I came home, Todd was there and, uh, and a bunch of kids from purchase were there and they all wanted to connect with the Coke guy. And I come in and there's like 10 people there uh, buying Coke from this 17-year-old kid. And I was like, dude, what are you going to give us for getting all these guys high? And he threw down two free bags of heroin. And me and Todd 
did the bags of dope and I think it was a Sunday night and we watched the Simpsons and we got so high, like we fell out and, and in the morning we were still high. And I remember the joke was in the morning, it was like, like it was, it was just like total serenity. And that was when I caught that first feeling of this is how I want to feel. And Todd did too. And, um, and from there it was just like, we were like racehorses kind of like just doing drugs. And, and, and Todd saw how far I was willing to go and I was making more money than him and I had more of a career than him. So he bailed early. And then from there, it was just the two of us just like basically failing, like who could fail worse basically until, um, you know, basic, I mean, also Todd introduced me to my partner you know, he went to college with uh, basically my quote-unquote wife, who I have two kids with, and he introduced me to her, and uh, we all did drugs together the first night we met, and then we all did drugs together the next night we met, which was 13 years later, and um, and I got clean, and Todd, I, you know, I, I used needles, and Todd didn't, so Todd would always kind of just talk about me as like this worst version of him. And, uh, and when I finally got clean in the end, like he didn't, he couldn't believe that I was doing it, but also like it was the first time in all the time I had done drugs or tried to get clean that I actually had found some sort of peace of mind, which he never got to find. And, uh, and he wound up dying, like you said, um, two Junes ago or Mays ago, somewhere in late May or early June. And, um, you know, it's crazy. And, and now now I get to celebrate him on Dopey, and um, and it's kind of sobered me up a lot more. Like, I think Dopey was a lot looser before Todd died, but, uh, you know, it sucks. Yeah, man, absolutely brutal. I'm, I'm really grateful that you uh, were willing to go there. I know it's not easy, and uh, you do really do his memory justice. Um, and I think it's important, you know, that people hear the story because, uh, as, as I said, there's a lot of lessons there. Now, um, I guess I, at this point in the journey, it's like, all right, before you did Dopey, you got clean. And you just referenced your lovely partner uh, who you've had on the show a number of times. And you guys have been really honest uh, about, you know, what happened and then how and how you got here you know it's such a crucial because a lot of people might be listening and this isn't dopey so there's been a lot of like you know this is how we got high and when but uh, you, you know that's just the preamble because the the <laughs> the revolution that your life experienced uh with your partner and as your two daughters you mentioned is really where the story takes a turn to you know from from nightmare to fairy tales yeah i mean um well the weirdest part was like um I need, I was on methadone for, for years and years. I was on methadone for, you know, I want to say six years or between five and seven years. It was very foggy and I was on a ton of, uh, benzos on Clonopin and Xanax. And I was living in Los Angeles and, uh, and I got a phone call from my mom and she said that she had leukemia and she didn't think she was doing well. And I had kind of been in denial about you know, my life and my life in relation to my family and my mother, like my mother was pretty straight shooter type. Like she didn't fuck around. You know, if she said something, chances are that was how it was. And she told it to me in this way that I kind of, I just had this moment that I knew she was going to die. 
and I was just like living with a girlfriend in Los Angeles on 150 milligrams of methadone every day and shooting dope and taking, you know, between 10 and 20 milligrams of Xanax or Klonopin a day and, you know, smoking weed all day and not working and just like a mess. And I was like, I can't, I can't do this. I can't, she can't die while I'm out here like this. So I like took, I decided I was going to get off methadone and it took me like six months, eight months or something. And I moved back home and I stopped taking heroin and I stopped taking pills and I, and I just, and I stopped taking methadone obviously. And I, I just kept smoking weed and, um, and then my mom died. And Todd was still hanging out with um, that woman. And she was, like, literally the most beautiful woman I had ever met. And um, and I was, like, I was in shock because my mother had died. Um, I was just totally leveled. And I was, like, why don't, why don't you let me go out with you guys one night? And, uh, and I think he, he was showing me pity uh, when he finally let me go out with them. And it was him and... Linda, uh, and some other people. And as soon as I saw Linda, I was just like, I was like, let's get, let's, you know, let's do this kind of thing. You know, just immediately. I was just so attracted to her and drawn to her. And somehow, like, it worked out. And, um, and like, within, I don't know, like, three months or four months, she was pregnant. And I was not in recovery. I was still smoking weed. And, and I'd even done dope a few times with Todd. And, um, and after she got pregnant, I don't know why, but Todd started coming around to our apartment in Astoria with dope. And, uh, and I hadn't picked up full on habit, but it was, you know, it was getting to a bad place. And then she, we had the baby and, um, the addiction got much worse. And she caught me. She didn't know. She didn't know that I was using. She didn't know what was happening. We had a, a tiny baby, you know, a three-month-old baby, and I was still shooting dope. And uh, and she caught me one night, and she left, you know. And um, and I was fucked up, you know. I was fucked up on the drugs, and I couldn't believe I had fucked up my life to that degree. And that was in in 2010, right? And um, and I and I spent the year, you know, I was working at Katz's. I was actually a manager at Katz's Deli, and my drug use like spiraled out of control. You know, I was doing like $300 of heroin every day. I was passing out while I was working. I was like coughing while I was working. I would go home and shoot dope immediately. I would pay dealers just to come to my house with dope. Like, it was just like, it was bad, you know? And, um, and, uh, it got really, 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 really bad. And I had lost custody. And, uh, obviously, like, I was only seeing my kid with my dad. And we would come out to Long Island. And I would, like, nod out while I was playing with my baby. And, um, and then one day, like, I think I went out, like, I was bored in Manhattan and I was living on the Lower East Side and I went to some bar, you know, I had done a ton of dope and I went to some bar and I was walking home 
And I literally, I walked into a wall and I broke my nose and I got a black eye. And then um, I nodded out at work and I got fired. And like, I couldn't handle losing that job. So um, I, I told Linda what had happened and she's like, you got to get treatment. And, uh, and my cousin owned Katz's Deli and he was like, listen, go to treatment but you're not going to manage this place again. You can come back and you can be a waiter. And I was like, okay. And I went to treatment and that was when I met Chris. Um, and I went to this treatment center in Connecticut called Mountainside. And that's when I met Chris. And, um, and that was the beginning of my path back. But uh, that was like, I had a million bottoms, but that last run uh, at Katz's is when Nora was a baby was definitely the worst run I ever had. Yeah, man. I mean, so heavy. And, and again, thanks for going there, man. Um, you've been so open, uh, not just now, but obviously on your show, a big part of the beauty, especially of current day dopey, uh, is, is how open the family's been. I mean, we've heard the version of that story from you, uh, and we've heard it from Linda and we've heard it from her mother, which I got to say was one of the most gripping episodes in a long time was, was you and her tiptoeing through that time in your life and coming out the other side. And, and I got to say that was, it was just transcends even dopey. It was just such an amazing human story. So, uh, I appreciate that you, you take it there on the show. And obviously like you didn't get here overnight and your partner, uh, she wasn't a fan of the, the show in the beginning. So just to bring it up to speed, you're four months sober. You and Chris uh, come together. He's got two years. Uh, as you talked about earlier, you did, you know, a number of episodes built up a small but vocal global following. Yeah. Um, now, people who are listening who want to know, actually, maybe the Cliff's Notes to the whole story, the Dopey for Dummies, you, there's an episode of This American Life. So at what point... Uh, I guess, does your partner realize that Dopey is actually helping people and kind of, you know, instead of uh, not supporting it, she becomes an integral part of it. And then, of course, uh, Chris's relapse and passing. Um, basically, uh, Linda found out about Dopey right when we had started. Um, maybe like, I think, I want to say episode 12. Like, I hadn't told her about Dopey because I, I just didn't want to. And, uh, and I felt very free on Dopey, and I didn't think anybody would listen to it. And it was anonymous. And I remember I was sitting in a diner with her, and I was like, I was like I'm doing this podcast with my friend. It's called Dopey. And, um, and she was like, well, let me listen to it. And she listened to, like, one of the episodes now that's gone. And it was like the first thing I started talking about was, like, her dad and our daughter and like watching movies with them. And she's like, what the fuck is this? You know what I mean? She like lost it. Um, and she was like, you got to take these down. So like I told Chris to take down the whole show and he did, he took the whole show down. And then like Linda started like researching dopey and she saw that people thought it helped them, which was something that I never thought. Like even when Linda was convinced that it was helping people, I just let her think that because I wanted to do it. But in my opinion, like it was never about that. Dopey was about me and Chris having fun. 
and uh, and then she man she she agreed to let us put it back on as long as I didn't tell any fucked up stories. So for the first like twenty three episodes, I don't tell any fucked up stories. Like the first twelve episodes, um, we took out all of my stories, and then the next eleven episodes, I only told stories that weren't like drug stories like i would tell the story like when we snuck into the nick game or just stories about like dumb shit and not about the worst stuff i had ever done until i kind of realized that she had stopped listening and i was like fuck it like what are we gonna do you know so we just started going for it and and linda's a social worker so she was just she saw a lot of potential in us helping people to the casual listener and i know this has been a lot of the blowback you've gotten from the, the quote recovery community is that it's it's a bit juvenile or it celebrates, uh, you know, getting fucked up and it lacks responsibility or awareness or sensitivity. And I guess it was all those things in the beginning, you know, and that's part of the charm is like, you know, I would never be, inter- frankly, interested in listening to your traditional, like, sober dogma uh, recovery podcast, at least not regularly. But I, I, I was in search of some information about Kratom a year, like two and a half years ago. Uh, and I looked for a podcast and you must've mentioned it or put it in the show notes, but it was a very innocuous part of one episode. But at the time I was working on the ganja farms and I would need to like download a bunch of stuff to listen to because we wouldn't get a great signal. Same reason why I had to come down the hill to call you today to get a good signal. So the first time I heard dopey, it was like four episodes. And one of them was actually you getting kicked out of a weed farm which was like, holy shit, it's like, I know this guy, right? Just really uh, one of the first of many synchronicities. And I grew to uh, appreciate the candor and just the frankness and the realness. And, and of course, as I mentioned earlier, the chemistry between you and Chris. And, and you know, up until his death and, and in obviously afterwards, Chris ha- is such an um, important, essential part to the dopey story. In life, he was. He was like a yang to your yin. So I would love if you just explore who he was a little bit and then like, you know, how did he went from somebody who you looked up to in their recovery to someone who uh, went back out and sadly died. Well, I mean, first of all, like Dopey is Chris's show. You know, it's like, you know, it was our show and uh, there'll never be an episode of Dopey where I don't at least mention him. And, uh, and I still look up to him even though he fucked up and died. You know, he's very, very bright guy. He's a very, just like, he knew his shit, and he he was like, he was very special. You know, I'll tell you this. I, I still get messages on Instagram from random people all the time, and I want to say that, like, every few months I get a message from a, a, a woman in her early 20s who writes me, I know Chris would have been my soulmate had we met. and um, And that's basically who he was. He was just like... In infinite magnetism you know you listened to him and you liked him he could go toe-to-toe with anybody intellectually obviously his stories were off the hook in terms of like graphicness and his ability to tell them he was like a wonderful storyteller he um and i mean that's what we had in common more than anything was our love of the minutia like we were both seinfeld people who could get off on talking about nothing. And like, if you have a story where you wind up like roughing up the, the nurse at a veterinarian clinic to steal feline Xanax, which they don't have, and you wind up stealing phenobarbital, but you, you, but the details 
make the story come alive. That's what Chris was. Like, he'd have the most debauched story, but then there would be one detail, like the cereal he was eating or something stupid. And then on the other side, he knew everything inside and out about recovery. He knew everything inside and out about drugs. He had spent, he had been to like 15 treatment centers. He had spent two years in jail. He was, uh, came from money, but he was the real thing. He knew, uh, he just knew everything uh, about this. And, I, and there couldn't have been a better person to do it with. Not to mention, you know, he was such a fucking slacker and such a, a dodo. But at the same time, he was obsessed with the show, just like I was. I mean, he would drive to New York to do the show from Massachusetts. Uh, we wouldn't have done the show had he not been so fucking invested, you know? Um, it never would have happened. I never went to Massachusetts once to do the show. In the end, we would meet in uh, in the Hamptons to do it at his parents' house. But, I mean, he was the show. Wow, man. That, that's profound and deep and heartfelt. And, yeah, uh, it was always funny because Chris was really – uh, he's, he was comically unawares of like uh, the zeitgeist, songs, films, things that everyone knows about. He was rather clueless about, but he yeah. could quote these multisyllabic medical definitions and terms like right off the dome. Uh, and of course, yes, his stories, his brazen behavior, his yeah. his uh, he, he really just lacked judgment and those episodes with him you know all of them right up till the bitter end you know is such a beautiful snapshot of of a human somebody who and continues to be both a cautionary tale and a and a beacon of light and and like todd you memorialize and and serve chris's legacy admirably respectfully responsibly but still in line with his ridiculous sense of humor and absurdist nature um I got to tell you, I've gone back and listened to his last three appearance, you know, the, the last three episodes he was on, you know, yeah. after the Artie Lang. And I want to get to yeah. maybe Artie if we have time, but um, just because I felt like I know you guys, you know, I listened to so many of them one after the other while I'm fucking working in the gardens. It, and I still feel like I know you. I guess I can say I know you now, but it's like I knew Chris, too. So. I got to say, I just thought he was like disengaged or bored or maybe tired of you picking on him. I didn't pick up the first time through at all because he was so uh, apparently strong in his recovery. It just didn't dawn on me, much like it didn't dawn on you. But listening back now, it's fucking clear as day. It, right. It's so clear that it's remarkable that so many of us, you know, listeners, you, people in his life, you know, weren't aware of it or at least until the very end. So I know it's hard for you to revisit, but people who are listening to this. It's probably like, what happened? Um, how, how did it happen? Uh, you know, as much or as little as you want to go into that. And, and cause I really want to get to, you know, in his death, you have this beautiful, uh, organism that is the podcast and the dopey nation. And the reason I'm talking to you today, the reason I know dozens of people in recovery all over the world is cause of this show and, and his death. So can you take us through that and then maybe get into the, What's grown, what's sprouted from, you know, the ashes? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, that's that's one of the the worst parts about, I mean, that is the worst part of the whole thing. I mean, Todd dying was uh, was terrible, but, uh, but Todd never had any time 
you know, and Todd never, um, I don't know, he never enjoyed recovery. And Chris and I built this whole, you know, organism, this whole, like, whatever, fake brand, this whole show based on the fact that we were enjoying our recovery. So when he turned the corner, I didn't see it. And, I mean, like, I have a lot of excuses, you know, for why I didn't see it. But I'll, I'll take you through it as best as I can. He both of our lives had changed a ton in the time we had done the show. Um, I had gotten back together with Linda. Um, that year we were, uh, you know, she had gotten pregnant and, uh, and we were looking for a house. He, uh, was finishing, he was in a program to become a PhD in psychology. And I guess they, they break it up into a master's program and then the PhD program. And he was finishing up his master's program he was working in a sober house in Great Barrington. He was an intern at a school, and he had just taken a job as a sober companion for his sister's company. All the while, he had gotten into a serious relationship with this uh, medical student from Harvard and moved in with her. So we're talking about, like, as much action as two lives could handle at one time. Um, and at the end, you know the majority of the shows we had done remotely either on Skype or, uh, on the phone. And, um, but I'll say this, and I, I think I've talked about it on the show a little bit. I mean, the story, his story in the end was he went on vacation. This is the story he told, you know, and, um, I don't know what's true or not true. And I think that's what you're dealing with when you deal with drug addicts and relapse and death, you know, you don't know what the real story is. Um, with him, the story that I do know is that him and Annie went to Anguilla or Anguilla. He pronounced it Anguilla. And, um, and he told me the story that he went, he was, he was trying to get in shape with her and doing all this dieting and going to the gym. And I always made fun of him for it. And he said he went with Annie to the gym and he wanted to show her how high he could karate kick. And he, uh, he tore something in his leg below his ass. And he would always say, I, I, I broke my ass. I hurt my ass. And he would complain about it to me from time to time, but I just didn't really think about it. Cause I had a baby on the way and a house and I had just like my job had changed. And, you know, I was just kind of doing my thing and I wasn't particularly concerned about Chris's ass pain. And he, at the same time, like I said, had all those things going on. So it was very hard to know, what was happening. Although I did feel like him drifting away from the show and it was very upsetting to me because I just figured he was done. Um, and, and, and I think the show was magical mostly because like you said, he could handle me picking on him and he would be, if you're into the show, he could pick on me, you know, it could go back and forth. But um, he just started to, to, it seemed like he started to lose interest. But then one of the, the great beautiful ends of the show was that we bought this house and he came out to the house and we recorded three episodes of Dopey. I think it was in the 130s and they were like some of the best episodes we had ever done. And we were just full of this joy and energy and good times. And it was after that. I think we did one on the phone and then we did the Artie Lang episode. And um, we had tried to get Artie on the show for years. And, uh, and I finally pinned him down and Chris was like, I can't do it. And I, and Chris had been drifting away. 
Like, he couldn't come to the city. He couldn't do anything. He was barely talking to me. And I couldn't possibly imagine he was using. I just, I was just fairly certain that, um, that he was, like, losing interest. And then, around the same time, uh, a buddy of his who actually designed the Dopey logo hit me up. And he's like, what's up with Chris? And Todd had just died. And I was like, what do you mean? And he was like, well, he just called his sponsor and he thought he was talking to you. And I like freaked out and I called him up and he basically like just said he had been up all night studying and, and I just believed everything. And so did his sponsor and so did his friends and his girlfriend. I think Annie like started to suspect a little bit worse. And uh, when the Artie Lang show came around, he was like, dude, uh, I can't do it. You got to get it another time. And I was like, fuck you. I'm doing it. You know, if you don't want to come, don't fucking come. I don't care. Because I could, I, I wanted Artie on so bad. So he came, but for the first time, he didn't drive to New York. He took a bus. And he showed up looking like shit. And, um, and again, he was complaining about his ligament or whatever. And at Artie's, he was weird. And he was not friendly. And he was not himself. But I didn't pick up that he was using. Yes, in retrospect, it's obvious, obvious, obvious. Um, Artie Lang is like uh, the biggest get, you know, the Stern connection, the drugs, the story, the fanfare, the drama. So, like, you're to be excused for maybe not having your thumb on the pulse of whether Chris was, was high or not. You were at Artie's house, right? Yeah, we went to I mean, his uh, apartment in uh, in uh, Hoboken. But it was more than that. We I had a baby at home. We had just right. bought a house. Like it was like ridiculous pressure everywhere. And uh, but we went out there, and he was just he was a mess. But I was just really focused on getting the best appearance from Artie, setting up the gear, you know, keeping my thoughts intact. You know, it's a lot. You know what I mean? And. Uh, and after the interview, we we went to we actually took a ferry back across the the Hudson, and he was just not himself. And I was like, "Do you want to go eat?" And he was like, uh, "No." And he never didn't want to go eat. So I was like, "This is." I felt like the show was over, and it was like right right then. The next two episodes we did on the phone, and they the first one was okay, but. Not really. And I, and I started to having to tell more stories because he wasn't paying attention. And he, and I remember he made us play like a 20-minute voicemail. And I was like, what the fuck is this? Um, and, and I just felt it falling apart, you know. And, 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 we, and I confronted him because I couldn't handle it. And he was, you know, he was getting high and he couldn't tell me. And, um, and we basically bickered, you know, we bickered for a while. Um, and then it was actually the night before he died. We got into this crazy, crazy fight and, um, and he blamed it all on Annie. And, and then he started to, it was like this very beautiful thing. It was almost like, like, uh, Providence that it could happen. But he was like, all I want to do is do dopey. I don't care about school. I don't care about anything. It's the only thing I care about. And I knew he meant it. Because I knew how much he got out of it. I knew that Dopey was the ultimate uh, comeback for him. Where all of his mistakes turned into his strengths. And he knew it too. But meanwhile, what I didn't know was that he was like relapsing like a crazy person. You know, he had fentanyl, he had coke, he had pills. 
he was drinking, he was smoking cigarettes, he was, you know, he was out of hand. And um, the night before he died, he was just like, he was like, I, he said, I love you. Like, it was the most beautiful thing. He was like, I love you. Um, and uh, I was like, I love you too, but I got to go to bed. And then Annie hit me up and she was like, I'm worried about Chris. Can you check on him? And I woke up at, I think, 6. I mean, I think it was 6.12 in the morning. I woke up. And whenever I would text Chris, he would always text me right back, like whatever, whenever it was. I texted him at 6.12 in the morning. And I said, uh, dude, are you all right? And he texted me, I'm all right. I'm not great, but I'm alive. I'll talk to you later, okay? And like four hours later, Annie called me and told me she found him dead. Um, and I was just like, I didn't believe it. Man. Wow. I mean, I've heard you tell this story a number of times on the pod, and, and it never is anything less than excruciating to, like, relive on my end. So I can only imagine what that's like for you. Again, deep bow of gratitude uh, for going there and, of course, condolences. And yeah, man, it's, it's like, I often think of Chris, like I think of say, you know, even more so, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman of these people that were so deep into their recovery and it was in the rear view mirror and they were on to, to grander things and are, were these uh, stories of, of resurgence. And then just like in an instant, it can be over. And in the fentanyl era, I mean, shit, yeah. Prince, Mac Miller, Tom Petty, and then of course the thousands of Chris's out Todd's, there whatever. Todd's yeah of course um and you know that's what keeps me right is is fear of death um and Chris is a big part of that and so is Dopey Podcast man and I said it before and I'll say it again it is such an invaluable resource to people in all areas of the affliction from the those steeped in the deepest recovery that pop on and announce their 10 20 30 years shedding insight and 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 information in the Facebook group or on Reddit or, or the folks that often call in or write into the show who are deep in it. And like, you're their hope and Chris is their patron saint. And so in death, Dopey, uh, turned a corner and has become really a unicorn. If there's nothing on earth like Dopey podcast, forget the recovery community, just period. And it's liberated so many people to just confront and themselves, their addiction, their pain in the past. You know, like I found Dopey shortly after I had done some time in jail. And in that time, I lost my dad and I carried a lot of pain with that. And, and I might have put that into drugs. But like hearing other people's tales, hearing you talk, you referenced your mo mother's death and the role and all that uh, a number of times on the show. And I connected with that. And I just think that Chris's death. Uh, such a profound example of how, tr you know, slippery the slope is and how precious life is. Um, but you, I mean, you've, you've been, uh, given this impossible task of taking the show on and you couldn't give it up. It meant too much to too many people, Chris, more than anyone. But now you're this master interviewer. You're this like, uh, you know, persona in the recovery community. You're invited to music festivals. You are, there are, uh, recovery scholarships uh in chris's memory and uh, with dopey's uh you know involvement uh it's just amazing that you went from a dude who's like girl wouldn't let him tell 
fucked up stories on the air to like this, you know, you're really a, a beacon of hope and somebody that matters to so many people. And, and frankly, I don't know that it would have really played out like that if Chris had not passed. So in death, there's this amazing gift to all of us and to you. And uh, what can you just kind of reflect on how how you navigated not so much as death? You've talked about that a lot on the show, and I don't want to keep making you go somewhere painful. But just the the uh, aftermath for the show and, and, and kind of take us up to the here and now, whether it be the guests that you get or the profile you have or what it was like to get to two and three million downloads and stuff. Right. Well, I mean, first of all, like, and it, it might be obvious or whatever, but like, it would it would have been much better if he hadn't have died. You know, I, it would be like, it would just, you know, the show wouldn't have gotten as big as it is, but it would have been infinitely more fun. And, um, and I didn't want him to die. You know what I mean? And like, whenever I hear, I mean, the, the most, the funny thing is whenever I hear anybody like send in a voicemail or write me an email and they end it, toodles for Chris, it just makes me, it just makes me realize how kind of he touched people and how we touched people. And like, it's just like, I, I can be in denial about like the way the show affects people or whatever. But when they say it, I hear it. So like, yes, it, it's definitely true that Chris dying helped a ton of people, but it fucking sucks that it had to happen like that. Um, yeah. And people learned from it. And like, yeah, we were like idiots having a good time. But I think that was a great message in itself, you know, period, like that you could be uh, an IV drug addict in recovery and, and still have a good time. Like that was a good message then the message kind of changed to if you fuck around, you can die like Chris did or like Todd did or like this guy, Dave Marshall or that dude, Andrew or whoever, you know, there's like, there was a list of people dying as, as we led up to Chris dying and, um, which was very hard and, and Todd's death was sobering and Chris, Chris's death was just insanity. And after Chris's death, it was just like, I wasn't going to stop doing the show. I'd always wanted to have a fucking talk show and I did. And I had an audience and I was in recovery and, and like, I couldn't walk away from the audience and I couldn't walk away from Chris and I couldn't walk away from what we had built. So I kept going. And, um, you know, like the, the bittersweet part is it's hard to laugh. Like we used to laugh. And that was the, you know, for me, that was my favorite part of the show was the laughing was like the ridiculous like fun but um you know linda's always like the show can't always be fun it's about drug addiction people die blah 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 and um so i just needed to figure out how to make the show work you know and when chris died i was just like if the show sucks or if it's boring or i don't like doing it i'm gonna stop and and for the first couple months it was not great and it was hard and it was very painful and uh and i realized i needed help and um and my buddy sam who i'd gone to treatment like volunteered to start listening to it all the time and help me understand what what it was and that was a great help to the show and then just like weird random shit started happening like i ran into mark Marin and he was just like yeah i'll do it you know like instantly and, uh, and, and I ran into, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, who refused to do it when Chris was alive, but when she heard Chris had died, uh, 
she wanted to do it. And then like, like, uh, Bob Forrest hooked me up with the drummer from Guns N' Roses, Steven Adler. And just like, you know, weird people just started coming out of the woodwork to come on the show. And I kind of realized in my head that the only way the show could function is if I also had a friend on. So I started just putting random friends on. And so you'd still feel that authentic vibe, but you'd still get these stories and we'd always get voicemails. And the show just kind of consolidated itself based on the trauma that was shared by the listeners. Like, I think everybody who ever listened to an episode kind of stopped listening. And then when they heard Chris had died, they wanted to see what happened. They wanted to pay respects. They wanted to mourn him. And even bigger than that, that's when a couple of fans uh, in the Dopey Nation were like, we need to make a fan group. And uh, Andrew G and uh, Paulina and Catherine were like, we got to make a Facebook group. And they asked me and I was like, do it. But I don't want to really have anything to do with it. And it was really a group meant to mourn Chris. And, uh, and that group came about and, you know, a couple thousand people joined it and it became this sort of stronghold of goodwill, good vibes and, you know, recovery, addiction and dumb shit. And all those things kind of echoed back and forth. And since the beginning, I've always been like a, an attention whore and I've always like tried to get stories about Dopey. And I wrote This American Life about Dopey when Chris was alive, because I thought Dopey was a good story when Chris was alive, and they ignored me. But when he had died, I wrote them again, and they, they thought it was a good story. So when This American Life did their piece on us, you know, like five, six million people listened to it, and we managed to keep a little bit of the audience, which, uh, which pushed it again up the hill. Yeah, that's sort of the tipping point for like the group, the Dopey Nation, and just the sort of narrative of the podcast. Chris, his passing, uh, you're sort of 40 years in the desert in between that and This American Life. And then since This American Life, it, there's obviously a ton of newbies and curious Georges and such, you know, who are just poking around because they were taken by the story. But when you were talking about the laughter, there was a, there's a certain register, like a guttural laugh that you had with Chris that we miss. I, I feel like you really, it just doesn't come out of you anymore. And I think that that's sort of just like, uh, something you shared with him and it was really beautiful. And I didn't really notice it that much until you started playing some older clips of, you know, those, uh, those chopped and screwed ones. Yeah. And I think that those are really amazing snapshots into the, what, what was so special about your relationship on the podcast and, 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 and with regard to like the, this American life, I mean, I think that there are a lot of the hardcore old school dopey fans who are almost in a way resentful that there was this sort of like dopey for dummies, 30 minute, uh, little narrative that went out to all these millions of people because so many people, none more than yourself and those around you had like lived through the trauma and pain that made it this captivating story. And I think that that over time has subsided and, and a good number of people that maybe found the show that way or found the Dopey Nation that way are still involved. And many of them are, you know, vibrant members of the community. So I'm a fan of This American Life because that, that really pushed you to a different stratosphere as a podcaster. Because I got, you know, I have this podcast and it's my baby and I look up to you, man. 
I admire and really respect you as a podcaster, and I've been able to watch you grow and evolve and sort of hone your craft. Um, do you feel like you have the talk show you always sought after, or do you envision yourself still having that traditional Johnny Carson kind of situation? I never wanted a Johnny Carson. First or of all, Stern, I Stern. No, first of all, I want to say this. The, the laughter from Chris, like, I think it hasn't been rep replicated, but whenever there's a close friend on, it's like the, the, the crazy laughter with Chris would mostly happen because what we would do is we would get together once a month and we would record three or four episodes. So that's three or four hours of recording. So it would be on the third or fourth episode that we would record the dumbest shit because we'd run out of stuff and we'd be tired. It'd be like one in the morning and we'd be delirious. And that's where like the good laughs would come and just the real dumb shit would come. So like it was like a weird secret weapon that was also a weakness kind of thing. So that's, that's important to mention because I don't do the show like that anymore. I like do the show every week when I can, you know, and definitely the show is not what, uh, what I want it to be. Like I, I always envisioned it, even with Chris, when he was alive, I would tell him all the time, I want the show to be like a daytime talk show where we do it exactly the way we did it in a kitchen and it's chill and you have musical guests and you like go to rehab and people in, rec you know, in early recovery do karaoke and you have bands and you have cooking segments and, like, it's like real, like, like real Regis Philbin kind of thing. Like, I love how Howard does his show, but I never liked that, that dark studio vibe. Like, it's too, like, strippery. Like, I'd want it to be more of like a house, like relaxing, like you're chilling. Um, and whatever that looked like. You know, and I, I still want, I mean, like, the biggest difference between what it is and what I want it to be is I work in a deli still. I do the show in between my work. Now with this whole COVID thing, I do all of my interviews on the phone, which sucks. Like you wanted to do this in person. I wanted to do it in person, but who knows when people will be around each other again. So like, I mean, I have so, I have such a dream of like this being a talk show. Like, I mean, like, I mean, I don't, I'm not the biggest Joe Rogan fan, but I would love his reach. I would love his success. I would love to do it four days a week. Um, I just, you know, I have big dreams of it being like relaxing, like a place. Like that was the other point of Dopey was it was a place where addicts didn't feel alone, which is what I got from Stern. What I got from Stern is when I listened to Howard, I felt like I was with my friends. And that's what I wanted Dopey to feel like to other people. And I think that's our biggest success. Our biz biggest success is that people listen and they feel less alone. Like, I don't think I was ever, like, the smartest or most funny person. But it was like you felt like you were hanging out with somebody you knew. And I, and I tried to emulate Howard, who did that for me. And, uh, and that's what I would want Dopey to be. And I would love to not fucking work in a deli. As much as I've loved working at Cats's, I would love it to be a career. And I would love people to want to come on. Like, I've had so many people on the show who didn't want to come on and it sucked. You know, the best guests are the guests that want to come on, not the guests that do. Copy that, man. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, 
it's a it's a weird thing the whole podcast game and like yeah you working in cats i love that cats this is a part of the story i remember when my parents first took me there when i was a little kid went to a play went to cats's and yeah a huge fan of the jewish deli yeah i get another uh symbiotic connection between you and i so one of the things that i think is so essential uh is the fact you know i am somebody who struggled and was addicted to pharmaceutical opiates for a long time and i haven't been for a long time and right. I still smoke weed regularly. I use, you know, Kratom and uh, occasionally psychedelics. But I'm still welcome, not only in the Dopey Nation, but it's there's no dogma with Dopey Podcast. There's, there is this new sort of progressive uh, harm reduction influenced, uh, you call it the alt-recovery movement. And it's just sort of a loosely defined thing as I understand it. But that, and you've had like, say, Stephanie Whittle's walks on the show and People who listen to my show might remember her late brother, Harris Whittles, who passed away from from uh, heroin. And she came on your show and talked at length about his life. And then you went on her show and did, you know, a shorter, more succinct version of what we're doing. And I think that uh, that I know I speak for a number of people in the Dopey Nation that like those two podcasts hers and yours, exist in this sort of new alt-recovery, harm-reduction approach. And it's very welcoming, and it's very inclusive, and it doesn't make people feel like, uh, you know, shit or shame. And, and But I also know that that's not your path. You work the steps and are totally abstinent, yet you espouse a more uh, empathetic or lenient approach in the alt-recovery movement. You do it one way, but you you support and in essence like wave the alt recovery flag, and and that's a big part of dopey. Yeah, I mean, I I love that, and it wasn't always like that. You know, in the beginning, uh, I would like give people shit who were on methadone or suboxone or smoke weed or whatever because maybe I was jealous, and also because I never could could do anything like i could never take methadone respectfully or responsibly or effectively is the word or suboxone if i ever took anything i used everything and basically um when chris would talk about how people could could do medicated assisted treatment and i would i would be like you're full of shit like i had a lot more leeway when he was alive that i could say whatever i wanted and um but he, he really, like, laid it down. He was like, dude, if it's helping people, then what the fuck? And I was like, that's true. And, and statistically, uh, there are, there's so much more success in people using medicated-assisted treatment than abstinence. And it's like, what the, who am I to dog somebody who's, like, getting by in this world? The world is so fucking difficult, especially if you're an addict and you figured out a way to have some peace and not destroy your life, it's like, fuck, you know, who am I to say anything besides good for you? And uh, what happened, though, with the alt-recovery movement was, you know, every every few feet I get ahead in Dopey, I kind of get worried about it falling back. And I think it was last summer, and I was talking to Sam, and I was like, I don't know, I think, I think we're losing something. But it also seems like a lot of people have gotten clean just from listening to Dopey, what if we, we started some dopey movement kind of thing that just helped people get clean just with vibes or whatever? And uh, and then, you know, we kind of, 
I was like, maybe we could set up a foundation and, and help addicts some way, you know. And nothing really was clicking in my mind. And then, like, we decided to do DopeyCon, and Mountainside offered to pay for it and put it on. And they were like, do you want to? And DopeyCon was the first live Dopey, and 100 Dopey fans came to this, like, uh, you know, like this swanky brownstone in Manhattan. And I had a bunch of speakers and musicians, and it was fun. And then Mountainside, we were like, we want to give a scholarship away. And I was like, hmm. And I was like, maybe I could get some more scholarships. And uh, But I put it on the back burner, and I got this email from this woman in New Hampshire named Jamie. And she was on Suboxone, or Suboxone, however you properly pronounce it. And she was like, she was like, I, I, I'm not abstinent, I'm not clean, but... Uh, but I haven't used dope in X amount of time because of dopey. And I feel that dopey is at the vanguard of the alt recovery movement. And I was like, what? <laughs> was like the alt recovery movement. That sounds like something. And, uh, and my dad tried to trademark it and, you know, and then it just kind of became this thing, which was like, if you want to get clean by any method, you can do it by any method. You can improve your life, do it, you know, whatever it might be. And, like, me and Sam would talk about it all the time. And, you know, like, as a 12-step person, which I am, Sam isn't, I would just be like, well, my 12-stepness is folded into the alt-recovery movement. And since then, I was like, I want to give away a scholarship every month. And we've given away four scholarships this year just through goodwill. You know, Turnbridge in Connecticut gave us one. Mountainside gave us one. Aloe gave us one. And this transcend recovery gave us one and like that's just like i mean i can't even believe it to be honest with you it's like yeah we help people but we've actually like managed to give away probably like almost half a million dollars in treatment to dope fiends who needed to go somewhere and like it's just cool like i never would have suspected us doing anything like that i mean that's fucking magic dude seriously it was so proud when that started happening. And, and I got to say, you know, there are a number of personalities on the show and in the group that have sort of come to life, whether it's through voicemails or calling in or whatever it is. And you've always really been, you know, incredible uh, resource to people that just needed to talk. You know, I think of the one guy that's on your show, a bunch, Jeremy from down there in Baton Rouge, who was yeah. the recipient of one of uh, maybe the first scholarship and, and just his journey. And his ability to communicate that via the show is another just uh, incredible facet to the experience and, and, and his just emblematic of, of so many people's. And it's, it's something that you should be really fucking proud of and hang your hat on. And of course, Chris and Todd, uh, and their stories and their roles in this journey have a major part of those scholarships coming to fruition. So you got to think that they're, you know, they didn't, die in vain you know like they're they're helping people and i think maybe that's why i'm so attached why i have these emotional reactions when i hear a song or think about them or listen to old footage and you hear a lot of that when people call into the show or or write and i think that that's a testament to just this platform and community and vibration that you put it's so funny because you know the guy that started dopey and, and the guy or with Chris, you know, yourself back then and you now, it's just such an evolution. 
and right. and it's never more so on display than uh, when you are talking about your family or you have your father Alan on or you have your partner Linda on or her mother. Um, I wanted to just ask about uh, what, because because you're clearly so happy now, and that's one of the things I've always kind of wondered is like if I ever got all the way sober sober. Would it be any fun? Could I still have fun? Like Wilson, can you still have fun? You know, like I, I just wondered. And now I get to watch and listen and, and sort of live vicariously through you, this fulfilling and rewarding life of, of total abstinence and sobriety and working the steps. What, what brings you joy? How do you find those fucking laughs and those, like, uh, those moments of, of life, you know, not fucked up? Because obviously you do in abundance. Well, first of all, like it's available you know it's like um you know i I, i'm an idiot and it makes me think of like harry potter you know where dumbledore is like you know if 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 you ever need me you know i'm always available you know what i mean he says that when he gets kicked out of the school i think something like that and 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 that's not me but recovery is always available to anybody and uh and it's free you know um and I never enjoyed recovery uh, in my past. I always just saw it as a speed bump to my life. Like, I like to be fucked up. I, I saw herb as my lifeblood. And then dope became my, you know, obsession. And then, and then benzos became, like, my tool of shutting things down. And in the end, it was took a little while. You know, in the end, basically... Um, I was smoking weed and taking an occasional pill here and there and trying to reconcile with Linda, and she caught me with pills and uh, and took away custody again, right? I was 41, and I had gotten custody to the point where my older daughter would spend weekends with me. <sighs> and basically, I remember I was in my kitchen on, on Clinton Street in Manhattan, and it was the summer, it was August, and I was chain-smoking Marlboros, and I was writing this, and Linda had taken away custody, and I was writing this email to her in my kitchen. It's hot as hell. And, uh, and I remember just begging her to let me smoke weed in the email. Like, I won't do anything else, but I need to smoke weed. I love weed. I don't want to not smoke weed. It's part of who I am, you know. And uh, And I don't know, I had... I had a moment, you know, like you hear about these moments that people have. I had this moment and I saw myself sitting in this kitchen, writing this desperate email to my daughter's mother, begging for her to give me permission to smoke pot. You know, I had smoked pot for 20 years, you know, 20, 20, 20 years straight every day, except for when I was in treatment or in jail or whatever. And, uh, and I realized it was absurd. Like, what was I fighting for? I was 41, and I was a waiter. And, uh, and, and, and I had very little in my life. And yet I was just begging to hold on to this thing. And I kind of saw myself. And I was like, fuck. And I went to a 12-step meeting. And, uh, and I didn't want to get clean. And I didn't want it to be... I didn't want it to be my first day. They were like, is this your first day? And I was like, I don't want it to be my fucking first day. I'm just a tourist, you know. And uh, I got home and I was like, I think I need to make a change. And I, and I had jars and jars of nuggets. Like I had the fantasy that I had always wanted, which was like 
a cabinet full of jars of different strains of big jars and little jars and, you know, shattered and hash and keef and everything I'd always wanted, you know? And, uh, and I called one of my edibles and I, I called one of my best friends and I was like, come over, I'm going to give you all my weed. And he came over and I gave him all the weed and I went to a 7.30 meeting the next morning and some dude was like, "We." I told him my story about my family and he was like, we would love it if you came back tomorrow. And nobody had ever said that to me at a 12-step meeting. So I was like, fuck it. And I started going there every morning. And in the beginning, like I would wake up at 5 in the morning. It's incredibly uncomfortable and I was not joyful. But I think in time that changed. I think I'm a joyful person deep down. And I think, uh, I got used to being sober and I started to work the steps and I, and I, I got some peace out of it. And I don't like to be miserable. You know, I don't like to be unhappy. And like, um, I think like whenever I was unhappy, it was almost as a, as an excuse to get high. And I had decided I wasn't going to get high. So, I was like, stop fucking doing that. Like talking to my brain, stop fucking playing this game because you're not going to get high. So you might as well find some joy somewhere else. And that's when it hit me, which was I was 41 years old and I had gotten high for half of my life and I had nothing to show for it. And I was like, well, what, 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 what would happen if I didn't get high for 20 years? Like, what would I have to show for that? And I was like, and that seemed like a, an interesting idea. You know, 41 is, uh, 41 is like, you know, on the road to middle age. And I was still definitely a fucking idiot kid. And I was just like, I want to see what 20 years without anything does. And also, like, I was so in love with the counterculture and getting stoned and, and just everything about it. And I started, when I started to get clean, I would, I would pantomime smoking a joint. Like I would hold a, an imaginary roach between my thumb and my forefinger and I would hit the roach like imaginary and I would get high because I knew every inch of what getting high was. You know, I knew how it would burn my fingers. I knew how it would burn my throat. I knew, I just knew how it would feel and I knew how my brain would react to it. And I just, I had been there before. There was nowhere I was going to go. So I was just like, I just found joy. And I found joy in getting time. I felt pride in getting time. Um, within a little while, within a few months, I, I had, you know, Linda had come back, which I didn't expect. You know, I got to be in my daughter's life, which I always got just like crazy joy just from hanging out with her, which I still do. Now I, I get it from the baby, but the baby's a pain. But uh, just being responsible, just just turning the corner and surviving, and then making Dopey was, like, just the best. I'm so excited to make Dopey. Whenever I see something inspirational, like the Beastie Boys documentary, I always wanted to be in the Beastie Boys, you know? And I feel like Dopey is, like, almost as good. It's like my, my chance to do, to be me and do what I want. And, and I, I get joy in making stuff and I get joy in relationships and friendships and love and all that stuff. Music. I always wanted to be the fourth beastie too, man. No, I wanted to be Ad Rock. <laughs> I just wanted to be Ad Rock. 
I waited on him at Katz's. And I was oh, like, man. dude, I waited on him and Mike to get Katz's. And, uh, and I was doing a talk show at Katz's at the time. And Ad-Rock told me he would come on my talk show. And I had planned the whole thing out. Like I was going to do lyrics from License to L as I waited tables and try to get people to do the lyrics. And then he never responded to my email. And I was like devastated. And years later, he came back in. And I was like, what the fuck happened? And he was like, I know. I said I was going to do it, and I didn't do it. I'm a dick. And I was like, don't worry about it. But it was, it was crazy, you know? Oh, that's amazing, man. I know. That's so funny. Yeah, I just, I love the Beastie so much. I could only imagine. I've actually watched that, you know, whatever, Tales of a Jewish Waiter or whatever. I've watched a few of those on YouTube. You've given me so much time. I, I feel bad, but I'm so grateful. No, I was uh, excited to do it. Yeah. I wouldn't have done it like this if I didn't want to. I hope I yeah. didn't drag it out. So no, much. no, this is I wanted to fucking enjoy it. great. I, I totally have enjoyed it. And, you know, I just, I really admire uh, your your candor, your bravery, your ability to just, like I said, show your whole uh, world and your family and your, and the, you know, you're the fearless leader, if you will. Well, and, fear, fearful, neurotic leader, uh, whatever you want to call it, you know? Uh, but I think the reason that the community really touched so many people was it was everybody's ability to get honest. Chris's ability to get honest, Todd's ability to get honest, Linda's mom, Linda, my dad, everybody just was straight up and that's why people got so attached and you know that's the joy of the truth you know what i mean yeah man you're only as sick as your secrets is something i was always told and i firmly believe and in my own life i found that as soon as i got honest with myself and the, those around me you know things got better um but i still got a ways to go not only with uh, my journey with substances but just in general so, like, even just sitting down and, and rapping with you while you walked around suburbia, um, it was really rewarding, really rewarding for me. And I know it will be to l listeners to my show and maybe a few folks from yours that find their way over here. So, one day we'll do it in person. We'll chop it up about all the music, all the reggae. But, uh, you know, this was just such a joy and a privilege. And I'm so honored that you gave us so much time and so much of yourself. And and that goes for what you do with Dopey, man. You give so much time and so much of yourself. And it's truly in service, man. And I know along the way you've had to make a lot of amends and you've had to kind of face a lot of skeletons in your closet. But in doing that so publicly, you embolden so many thousands of people, myself and many people I know included. I've brought a number of people over to your podcast, Another Dopey Nation, and uh, they often remark just how much uh, they appreciate and lean on the show and the uh, the sort of diaspora. So I'm going to end it with that, uh, just a deep bow of gratitude and just honor of your service. And uh, I want to say one more thing before we stop, which is that, you know, I say it on the show once in a while, but that Dopey is almost nothing without the Dopey Nation. You know, we're nothing without listeners, and, and our listeners actually contribute. And you're one of the, the great contributors to the show. And, like, you're a huge piece of the puzzle, like it or not. You know, you, you carry a, a, your own flag through it. And I I mean, that's why I wanted. To, I was so excited to do the show, your show, because, like, I know that you're a part of our show. You know what I mean? It's meaningful. Like, it's, it's just as meaningful as anything else. I love it when you send in a message and you have theme music and, like, you're about it. You know, it's like 
it's all it's all part of the same thing. So I appreciate that, and I appreciate you having me on. It means a lot to me. Right on, my brother. Well, the feelings are mutual, man, and I love, you know, I just love being a one voice of of so many. But I think that the messages you get of people, whether they're going through it or they just got through it or they're reliving some real debauched time in their lives, it's just an outlet. And it's an outlet for me, and I know it's an outlet for many people that don't get to uh, leave their voicemails or write in. It still works for them. And, man, onward and upward, dude. I, uh, You know, please, I was going to say give uh, Linda my regards and give her, my fiancé, Alicia's regards because – Alicia's very fond of Linda, and nice. uh, when I mentioned you were coming on, and uh, uh, somehow Linda came up, she said, "Oh, she's my sister in this." So uh, nice. I was like, "Right on." Maybe one day we, we'll all get to get a proper hang. What post COVID uh, era? Oh yeah. Last thing, you had the COVID. Yeah, I did. <laughs> How are you doing with that? I still can't. Uh, I don't smell anything, and my taste is a little bit off. But I had, I had, I mean, I had a fever for like a week, and. My, I had a bad sort of throat, but my, my case has been nothing compared to what other people have had to deal with. Um, so I'm doing okay, and my family's doing great, and uh, and send my best to yours, and I hope I didn't go on too long, you know what I mean? I just figured if you wanted to hear the story, I, I would tell it to you the way, it, the way it happened, you know? Dude, I mean, like you said in the beginning, I'm a fan of the deep dive, and, and you've done a number of podcasts. I've listened to many besides your own. But, like, I really appreciate, like, the Dave that you brought to this. You were so engaged. You were so real, so honest. Like I said, I feel like I know you. And I hope yeah. that that transfers to the people that listen. And and one day we'll we'll do it again a little further down the journey. All right, man. No problem. Uh, thank you so much for having me. And uh, and I'm excited for uh, to hear it. Well, be well. Stay healthy. And uh, stay strong. Stay safe. Stay socially distant. I got to end with Minase Toodles. Yeah, right? Fucking that. Yeah, it's crazy. Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris, right? Right on, man. I spent too much time for some motherfuckers crying.
I'll get up and fly away. Want to say thank you to my man Dave from the Dopey Podcast for that just deep, deep, profound, emotional, and inspiring tale of through the darkness and into the light. So let that be inspiration to us all. And uh, big love to Dave and the Dopey Nation. I want to shout out some of my some of my peeps, like the Colleens and Julie in Seattle, <clears throat> and my man Jeremy in Baton Rouge, Misty. Uh, you all know who you are. Uh, really, just incredible community. Uh, humble to be a part of it, and you know. If you were wondering out there what's up and this is kind of uh, made you a bit curious please come check out the Dopey Nation listen to Dopey Podcast Dave drops one every Friday night it's like Shabbat so with that um, what was I going to follow that up with other than a wharf rat right I mean that was a wharf rat story and it deserved a glorious wharf rat crescendo uh, namely Hartford, Connecticut, May 28, 1977. Now, uh, a few weeks back marked four years since I had last uh, used pharmaceutical opiates. It's, you know, it's a, crazy to think. It was a, to, to make it four days at a point in time was an eternal struggle. So, um, coincidentally, or cosmically, or spiritually, the actual last day that I used was the day that Prince died. And, uh, yeah, that's how that worked. So, to commemorate the four years that I just reached, April... 21st, I wrote a little something, that a journal entry that turned into a note on Facebook, and uh, in the spirit of Dave's brutally honest and emotional and inspirational shares, and all those that have come on the Dopey Podcast, and in the Dopey Nation, and in the rooms around the world, I'm going to read this journal entry on the four-year anniversary of my last using. And uh, I'm going to cue up the appropriate song from Prince called Sometimes It Snows in April. And I'm hoping that the timing works out close enough to the length of the journal entry read aloud. So uh, let me cue that up and read that to you all and then going to hit you with another short interview from another sober warrior and spirit out there in the rock and roll culture. But first, sometimes it snows in April. Tuesday, April 21. 2020. Dearly beloved, today marks four years since I last used pharmaceutical opiates 
the day that Prince died. Losing him finally broke me through. This period is the longest sustained abstinence since I first began taking painkillers in my early 20s. There were modest successes along the way. I'd had a couple of pretty clear years down in Jack's Beach, Florida a decade back, but inevitably, I would always return to the pills and without fail become addicted again. Painkillers, specifically oxycodone, dictated my life terms, finances, my schedule, all of it to me for the better part of a dozen years, maybe even more, but at least that long. I was totally powerless over the addiction and it prompted behavior I'm not proud of and made me a person. I was ashamed to be. There were many nights that I wished I just wouldn't wake up the next day. Oxycontin, and later Roxy's or Blue's, single-handedly stood in the way between me and my dreams. Personal and professional aspirations, relationships, drove me away from my family. Addiction is like Groundhog Day, being stuck in the same nightmare day in and day out. It was like a broken record, with constant carnage, yet I could never see the light and if I did, it always felt so far away, and the mountains between insurmountable. Along the downward spiral, I tried the Suboxone route a couple of times via a doctor, and later off the street, but real talk, I was never completely committed to the process. I always found an excuse, or just outright lied to myself and others. Therefore, I yo-yoed through active using, without any real resolve or results any time I tried to kick. Whether it was just a couple of lore tabs on top of a few beers or a daily intake of five oxy-80s. The demon always needed feeding. The thirst to get right took precedence over anything else. I didn't go places or do things or take opportunities or make moves in life without my pills. I didn't relocate from Philly or that area for a long time because I was concerned about where and how I would cop my shit. Anytime I did go somewhere for longer than a day or two. I'd always account for and ration having enough meds to see me through. Without fail, I'd finish them faster than I'd predicted, duh, and be forced to deviate from our group plan to go find something, or just start to sweat out the withdrawals till I could get back to wherever it is I was that I could cop. Each sequel to this horror show became more desperate and depraved. This routine played out in every situation of my life for years and years and years. Jazz fest, snowboard trips, fish tour, a sojourn to the Super Bowl, all ended in the inevitable withdrawal and frantic, humiliating search for pills. Rinse, repeat, into the abyss. I said all the right things, hollow promises to anyone who would listen. Swore up and down to all my people that I would get better. I lied through my teeth, I hurt and betrayed friends, said and did unthinkable shit to my parents. I became dishonest, distrustful, and disgusting. There are many, many skeletons in my closet from this period of time in my life, and sometimes they still haunt me. I've done okay to make amends to many of the people I hurt the most, to own my behavior, lies, and bad energy that I put out into the universe. There are a few stones still unturned, though. A couple of wounds are still open, and one day I do hope to heal those fractures too. The amends stuff, it's some of the hardest work, but it's also the most rewarding and heart-filling. In October 2014, I got arrested, unrelated, 
and I went to jail for a calendar year. Now, five plus years in the rearview mirror, it's clear that my beginning to use pills again in that summer of 2014 definitely clouded the judgment I would have crucially needed to see the feds coming. In a way, getting popped saved me from another round of circling the drain of painkiller addiction. I got snatched off the street at the dawn of the fentanyl era. Gone were the days of pill mills, pill hill, or meeting the old man furniture delivery guy and trading a zip of beast or weed for his prescriptions. These days it's now Russian roulette in the streets. As we've learned from Mac Miller, Tom Petty, and of course Prince, and thousands of less famous yet equally special souls, the Fent Leviathan does not discriminate. Plus at that moment in time my karma was not exactly great. I was already backsliding towards active use again, and it was probably just a matter of time before I copped dirty pills on the street that killed me. Getting arrested and staying in jail for that year saved my life. No two ways about it. Thankfully, I did not use any drugs of any kind while I was on the inside, and I got a taste of actual sobriety for the first time in my adult life. It was while I was incarcerated that I truly began to process how the pills had, in essence, ruined my life, stolen my soul, and temporarily robbed me of all the inherent goodness that we are born with, from family issues or losing friends, blowing music media opportunities, ganja farms, and interpersonal relationships gone awry. Through the clarity of total sobriety while incarcerated, I was able to read the tea leaves process and internalize my affliction straight no chaser for the very first time and not just my addiction but certainly it began there the roots of my personal rebirth were in the ownership and transparency and honesty with myself and others and a new life grew from the ashes of my incarceration experience so I had a year and a half of opiate abstinence on this day four years ago when I pulled my F-150 into the tenderloin to finally get high again. The disease of addiction is sick and demented, so believe it or not, I felt like I'd, quote, earned it. A year in jail, losing my dad while I was on the inside, it had traumatized me, and I was emotionally vulnerable as the one-year anniversary of his passing galloped towards me. Even though I spent all those excruciating days and nights coming to terms with the fact that this poison ruined my life, I was due a little cheat, right? I was by myself. Who would know? I deserved this. So I bought a couple of blues off one of the omnipresent lurking zombies, just like old times, and suffocated them swiftly. I spent a few minutes sitting in my truck watching the junkies and the dealers in the tenderloin do their thing. Truly a demoralizing sight if there ever was. I was about to catch the elusive nod when my phone notified me of a text from my mom. Prince was dead. Any sort of high was immediately extinguished with an overbearing sense of dread and sorrow. Prince! Gone! 
I just knew it was from this shit. We'd heard about his overdose a week or so earlier. An emergency plane landing and an ER visit. There was too much smoke to be no fire. And now this. I knew from the minute I got that text from my mom that the pills had killed him. I think a combination of the drugs and grief caused me to kind of lose track of space and time, a quasi-blackout. I don't really remember driving the two-plus hours back to Grass Valley that day. I have a vague image in my mind of vomiting out the driver's side door at a gas station. I do remember the feelings of shock and then shame that came over me like it was yesterday. But it's been four years and here we are. Here I am, forever indebted to the love and support of my unwavering mother, my inspiring, loving, and understanding fiancé, wonderful friendships from across the miles, the years, trials, and tribulations. I am writing this today four years liberated from the demon of opiate addiction. For what it's worth, I am not sober and don't intend to be. I have found that cannabis and kratom are integral components to my getting this far. Some in recovery may see those tools as crutches. And that's cool. There are many ways to skin a cat. One day, maybe I will become less reliant on those substances too. For some folks, total abstinence, that's the only way. And I admire and respect that path. For me, I yearn to find some balance one that so often eludes those afflicted. For now, I have indeed navigated one that works for me. Today, and four years strong, an approach rooted in spirituality and harm reduction. Not religion, nor dogma, just an authentic, essential connection to source. But alas, I haven't got it all figured out. Far from it. It's still one day at a time, and it will be for the rest of my blessed days on this rock with y'all. If you know anyone out there is struggling with substances, let them know there is help. And not just the traditional fellowships, though they are time-honored programs bent on saving your life. The help comes in different shapes and sizes, any and all walks of life, to help shepherd you through with wisdom, empathy, understanding, and action. There are people who've been there and who've lived through the loss of dignity, the darkness and depravity. Many of them have availed themselves to me along the way and I aim to pay it forward. My door, ears, shoulders, and heart are always open to those suffering. Like I heard a wise Jedi say recently, you've got to go through it, not around it. I certainly left a trail of fire behind me, but today I live to tell the tale. And now everywhere I go, there's a purple hue. It follows me, surrounding me like a protective shield. I know it's you watching over me each and every step of the way. Thank you, Prince. Prince Rogers Nelson. 
in death, you gave me back my life. May the four winds blow you safely home. Sometimes it snows in April. Thank you to everybody that's tuned in to episode 33. I know it's been a heavy one and uh, wanted to hook you all up with a bonus conversation. Uh, One that I've been holding on to for a few months because it's also equally serious and beautifully human and deals with recovery and rock and roll. And that's my pal Keith Greiner. An absolutely incredibly talented f- photographer and, and a blossoming videographer, filmmaker. He's got a lot of talents, but I know him from taking pictures and his tremendous photography skills. We've worked together on projects with Live for Live Music and Swanee Halloween, and he was uh, in the Bay Area for uh, some dead shows around dead and company i should say uh over new year's in san francisco and also the motet carl denson thing which we did together and actually i wrote a piece and used some of his photos graciously so keith and i sat down for an interview and i didn't want to just tack it on to another interview i wanted to wait for the right one and i think even deep down i knew that would be dave from dopey and it you know, it took a few months uh, for that to come to fruition. So even though uh, it's been a long episode already and an emotional one, uh, I would wanted to give uh, everyone an opportunity to hear Keith's inspiring and uh, you know life-affirming story and uh, rebound from oblivion to uh, just at the at the real upper echelons of of live music and jam band photography and beyond. I mean, there's nothing better than, bigger than Bob Weir and the Rhythm Devils, Dead & Company. They had him out for New Year's and it was just a real joy to sit down and talk with him about that and his journey. So, coming up next... Fierce Photography's own Keith Greiner, who's currently residing in Nashville, Tennessee, 
You're listening to a studio version of Dirt by The Fish from Vermont, the same song that I referenced when I spoke to Dave about his dearly departed friend Todd. So uh, with that, here comes Keith Greiner on the Up For Life podcast, episode 33. And this is B. Getz. You're here in uh, Oakland, California at the Vibe Junkie Studios, and we're back with the Up For Life podcast. And it's an honor and a privilege and an absolute joy to be sitting here with my friend, peer, uh, collaborator, Mr. Keith Greiner, a photographer who uh, hails from Indiana but actually is currently residing in Nashville, Tennessee. Am I right? Yeah, holding it down uh, there in uh, in Nashville. So that's a, a recent... Uh, transition for you and I know uh, you know it wasn't something that you arrived at easy I'm just curious like uh, what was behind the move to Nashville because it's such a music city I mean that's what they call it Um, obviously there's a lot of opportunity for you there that was kind of uh, my goal Um, you know I came up uh, in my uh, in my career in in Indiana uh, that's where where I'm from and where I've always lived. And I kind of felt like I had done um, what I had to do in Indiana and that I was looking for, you know, the next opportunity or, you know, to, to go somewhere that I could explore uh, what comes next in my career. And... Uh, for the last couple of years, I've I've worked with Darius Rucker, and then uh, that led into working with Hootie and the Blowfish, and I've got a great relationship and friendship with uh, with his manager. So moving down there where uh, they're located uh, made sense, and uh, that's led already to to other opportunities and and working with with other artists out of Nashville. So, you know. Right now, I've uh, just gotten settled in and uh, continuing to to meet new artists, uh, to network with uh, other managements, and uh, really just optimistic and uh, about you know the future and uh, just seeing what what happens next. Yeah, man. I mean, there's a few places as exciting for that in like your line of work or our line of work and there's a lot of you know amazing musicians down there friends of the show like jen hartswick chris gelbuta steve gorman formerly of the black crows um there's there's so many different musicians down there there's obviously going to be amazing opportunities for you so i'm just excited for you i've been kind of following along uh this process with you moving through the social media etc so i knew that you had arrived there shortly before you came out here now i'm talking to you in my living room in my home studio here in Oakland. So let's talk a little bit about what you're doing out here in the Bay Area. You had two nights with the Motet at the Fillmore with the co-bill with Denson, but you're out here with the Motet. Then you have Today to Chill, and then you've got two big nights of Dead and Company, uh, basically in their hometown shows, the brand new Chase Center in San Francisco. So let's start the Motet. How did you uh, sort of connect with those guys, and uh, what is sort of the role that that you're working with them? Um... I love those guys, man. Uh, you know, I've uh, known those guys for for a handful of years, and I've been lucky enough to uh, work with them at uh, you know amazing venues like Red Rocks, and uh, just do great shows with them. Uh, they're they're so talented. They're so much fun. 
Um, and so I was just lucky enough to, uh, to be coming out here uh, to work with Dead & Co. the next couple of nights, and uh, which presented me the opportunity to work with my friends in the Motet. And uh, yeah, I had a lot of fun. Uh, there's not, uh, you know, there's very few iconic um, venues right. in the world that have such rich history like the Fillmore does. So true. And it was just absolutely amazing to walk around uh, for in that venue for a couple of hours, and you know, not only look at the uh, show posters that they have hanging, but really look at some of the iconic photography that they have hanging there and you know just kind of take a stroll through through the past and uh, take in uh, that history and just how amazing it was for artists uh, you know all of those artists that played there back in the the 60s and the 70s and sure. and of course continued through the decades but really to look at that older stuff and just think about you know the music that yeah. that was inspired in the bay area and that flourished you know people like joplin and the dead and jefferson airplane and things like that sure yeah man that's what made this place famous in terms of the music world and it's really cool because you're talking about yesteryear you're talking about today the motet are a very contemporary band you know they're not playing covers or you know they have an old sound but they're not an old band um so it's a real now music with the motet but then thanks to your relationship with them you get invited to play such a historic room uh or to shoot them playing in a historic room like the Fillmore. And it's funny because, you know, we ran into a, a peer of yours, uh, Jeffrey Dupuy, who's also out here and he was visiting the Fillmore for the first time. He's also a very talented photographer who's come on the show. And both of you guys made these posts about, like, his was basically like a bucket list venue. Yours were like, look where I am, you know, back where it all began. And I get... Uh, I get maybe take things for granted a little bit because I get I have the pleasure and the the you know privilege of going to these venues, particularly the Fillmore. Regularly, I live here. That I actually took twenty minutes myself and just made my way and look. I've seen those photos a thousand times. That beautiful little hang area with all those pictures through history. But knowing how you guys were feeling about being there, I had to just spend a little bit of time in there myself. Even though I had a million times and just take a look at the photos and soak in the history. So, yeah, you guys had that sort of effect on me, kind of, you know, jaded veteran, you know, remembering, well, how lucky I am. So, speaking of lucky, you know, you've been uh, kind of a shooting star in the jam music community as far as photographers go. I would say, I mean, uh, a few years back, I've been doing this a long time. I've been writing about music online since 99, but I've only really seen you in action for the past few years, but now you're everywhere and you're working with everybody. So I want to take it back to the beginning a little bit how you got into photography, maybe what caught your eye, no pun intended, uh, early on that said, hey, I, I got a thing for this. And then how did you take that and sort of uh, transition it to a music industry career in photography? So let's start at the beginning. How do you start with pictures? I think there's a, you know, I think it's kind of a positive story. Um, you know, I, I definitely have always uh, believed that um, you know, endings are the uh, opportunity for new beginnings, and that's where uh, my life was um, eight years ago. Um, 
you know, I had uh, a major life change uh, in a divorce, and uh, I, uh, I bought a point-and-shoot camera and decided to spend New Year's Eve with uh, a band uh, in our scene, Umphreys McGee, and uh, they were playing at the pageant in St. Louis for New Year's. And uh, I went to the show, had my little point-and-shoot, and just stood in the crowd, you know, taking awful pictures uh, from where I stood. But I had so much fun doing it that it kind of spurred the thought of, you know, maybe I should buy a, a real camera, learn how to use that camera, and, you know, maybe go to a concert or, or two and, and uh, you know, take some pictures. So... A couple months after that, I saved up enough money uh, to buy a camera, and uh, you know, so I, I picked up that camera and uh, I started going to local bars and uh, shooting local acts every Friday and Saturday night, and uh, you know, and that's kind of like where everything began. Like I had this big uh, empty space, you know, inside me in my life. And I wanted to fill that with something positive. And so photography was, uh, it was that, you know, what I filled that with. And, uh, you know, it was just something that I quickly became very passionate about. Um, I worked with a, a couple local photographers and uh, they noticed very quickly that um, I you was- had something special. I was able to see things, um, you know, I, I approach things, uh, with, a with a perspective of, you know, that wasn't, uh, how someone just usually stands there with the camera and takes a snapshot of something. I was searching for angles and compositions and things. And this is like early right away. Um, so yeah, maybe, maybe I did have a knack for it. Something that, uh, that I'd always had and, and just never realized, you know, never had the opportunity, never held a camera in my hand, really. So this wasn't, you know, there's a lot of people who's like, yeah, I have was into photography from an early age and, right. you know, I always took pictures and, you know, my dad was a photographer or a family member. Like, I didn't have any of that. Like, you know, this is just something that, um, you know, kind of late in life that, that I stumbled on. You know, so yeah, that's kind of how I uh, how things got got underway. That's pretty amazing because here we are. It's uh, December twenty ninth, so we're coming up on the anniversary of of you shooting that Umphreys show at the mm -hmm. pageant, and I mean now you you're out here shooting the kings. Basically, you know, there's I guess there's two kings if you want to say there's the fish and there's the dead, but they're they're the sort of uh, champions of this music community and culture uh, the most successful the highest profile so to you know be an official photographer for dead and company on their hometown new year's eve shows in a brand new state-of-the-art one billion dollar arena it's a fucking hell of a ride and, and and man just you know i'm gonna just deep bow right now and just honor that trajectory 
because as we both know, and we've talked about a lot this weekend, there's a lot of people who do what you do. There's a lot of photographers out there shooting these bands, commiserating, working with them, and sort of scrambling to find the work and the opportunities. So for you to have identified something as your passion and chased it, and, and obviously you're not, you haven't, quote, made it all the way, but you're at a really special and prestigious place in, in right here and now, and, and you know, people should you know, really have a lot of respect and admiration for that, especially given through what you've lived through to get there. And we're going to get to that. I just wanted to touch on, on the photography side of things. I didn't know you started so late, and I didn't know it started as, like, just catching the bug at a concert. I mean, that makes it even more fairy tale, and like you say, like a positive story, because you didn't go to some school and learn all these classes about, you know, maybe eventually you did, but that wasn't how you got there. I mean, do you have any formal training? Uh, not particularly. Um, it's even better. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm, I'm self-taught. Like, um, I uh, parted ways with a company that I'd worked for 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 a number of years, and uh, which uh, ended up giving me uh, the opportunity to focus uh, on this every single day. So it, uh, you know, it quickly became uh, the you know what my life revolved around and i don't think that has uh ever diminished you know it is still the the forefront of my life and and where my focus is um you know and and i appreciate what you're saying like you know working i have so much gratitude for this opportunity uh this weekend to uh to work with with dead and company you know and you know i i get to work uh next to uh, someone that I have the most uh, respect and admiration for in uh, Jay Blakesburg sure. uh, this weekend, and uh, you know, just being able to to work next to him is is just such such uh, an opportunity and uh, something that I never take for granted. Uh, he has always uh, been there in, uh, as far as being able to reach out to him and ask for advice. And, uh, you know, that is just uh, amazing that someone uh, that has been doing it as long as he has, um, you know, will takes the time to to teach, you know, the, the younger generations, the less experienced. And, um, you know, he's the most iconic uh, Grateful Dead photographer, in, in my opinion. Yeah. You know, I look at his pictures and I'm just absolutely uh, amazed at, you know, the moments that he's captured over the years. And, and it's truly uh, someone that I have the utmost respect for. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's just it'll, this weekend's just going to be uh, an honor, and you know, dream. all the way around. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And there's a parallel there because, you know, Jake's story, uh, Jay, Jay's Blakesburg story is, is not unlike yours in the sense that he found the joy at a dead show shooting for the hell of it as, you know, in his teens. You know, he's written about it extensively online and, and such. But uh, it wasn't like he was born and bred to be a, a cameraman, you know, with formal training and all that stuff. He was a deadhead who went to shows and shot some photos and was like, shit, I like this. And now he's a legend. And, and I think it's a testament to him uh, as an artist and as accomplished as he is that he avails himself to people like you 
and, and says, hey, I'm, you know, I'm going to open doors for these people, just like doors were open for me. And, and you're going to get to rub and watch him in action and, and see you know, how he goes about his business. And you can't put a price on that. There's a couple of things. There's two things that I have learned from him that uh, I want to take with me um, and, and never forget. And the first is that um, it took, it was uh, 30 year, 31 years after he shot his first Dead concert before he was hired by the Grateful Dead. And that puts a lot into perspective for me that it takes a lot of work and a lot of effort and, uh, you know, sticking with something. Um, and it takes all of that sometimes before you're going to see successes or get opportunities and that to never give up on those goals. And it also gives me... Uh, an added sense of, of gratitude for the successes that I have had thus far in my short career. The other thing that he uh, has taught me is that uh, passing on the knowledge to younger generations of photographers, people that are just starting out, you know, uh, showing them the ropes, answering their questions, uh, giving them advice even if they're not looking for it you know just to point them in in the right direction you know that kind of camaraderie that kind of brotherhood i think is is important and and i owe a lot of that to you know hit what he has done working with me and seeing him work with others interesting yeah that's beautiful too just that you can see it like that and and uh you know, derive that sort of like goal-oriented motivation from his, you know, three decades of shooting the culture before they, the dead themselves actually called him with a check. I mean, that's, that's definitely food for motivation. So thank you for sharing that. And I hope that the people listening can maybe apply that to their own lives in terms of maybe long-term goals, staying focused, etc. Uh, one last thing in the music world, I'm just curious, you know, might be putting you on the spot a little bit. Do you have a favorite artist or band to shoot? You know, not the one you like the best or whatever. Is there, is there one that presents visually or an aura or an energy that you find like most fulfilling to capture on, uh, on film? Well, Umphreys McGee has always been an important uh, part of my story. Um, Outside of shooting those local bars, Umphreys McGee was the uh, first band ever gave me my first photo pass to shoot a big stage. Right. So, you know, that uh, was just amazing. Uh, you know, that to me was like, oh my God, th these are the people, uh, this is the reason why I'm doing this and now I'm actually here to shoot them. Right. Then, uh, you know, continuing forward, uh, you know, starting to work with those guys, you know, forging friendships with them and, uh, you know, right now a long-term working relationship. So things really came full circle. Um, and, you know, they're, they're an amazing band. They've always had an amazing light show. Um, so that, that relationship has just been uh, paramount through my career. And then, you know my my first love and the band that like I'm always just absolutely uh, excited to go out and shoot is fish. Fish right. has always you know been been the 
been been the band for right. me and uh you know it's it's an interesting time right now as we are approaching you know the uh, 20th anniversary of of big cypress that oh, yeah. that many of us were at so it's uh i think this this time is is been a lot of uh there's been a lot of reflection Absolutely. going on and and strolling down memory lane and i think that's gonna you know continue to be awesome and uh it's yeah yeah man i mean i couldn't agree more in terms of what a fish looks like and so i can only imagine what it's like as with the photographer's eye to uh, have those canvases and and corroda and even as you talk about Humphreys, i mean jefferson waffle for years i mean those guys you know they're they're in essence band members creating the visuals yeah, and ben factor has just slid into oh, that right. role uh with those guys now as their new lighting director and it's almost like nothing's missed a beat because awesome. he uh he knows their music um inside and out right. which is just something you don't see is a new guy step in on day one like he's been there for years and have it down right yeah 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 that's been absolutely awesome and so like that has just been a continuation of amazing you know uh production and light show with with those guys and with their new lighting director awesome i want to talk uh a little more with you a long time ago um i read something on our site on live for live music you know about your life mm -hmm. and about recovery mm -hmm. and uh it was really amazing to see how open you were then. And I, I filed it away. I didn't even have a podcast then yet. But I was like, I got to talk to this guy about some of that stuff. Because it's no secret. You know, I talked about it on on uh, when I had Jeffrey Dupuy, who we saw last night, a photographer, also heavily involved in the recovery community in a professional capacity and has been in recovery for a long time as well, that I too have struggled with drugs, opiates specifically, pharmaceuticals, and uh you know, I really am interested and participate in a lot of ways in the recovery community, even though I'm not totally sober. Um, I have a lot of admiration for people who work in the music community that are sober and that, you know, maintain the recovery and work it and help others. Um, and you fall squarely into that category. And uh, I noticed a lot of photographers. I mean, you talk about Halloween, even, you know, uh, Aaron Bradley has been very open about being sober. Josh Skoll, yourself. We already talked about Jeffrey. There's a lot of sobriety in photography, and there's a great deal of sobriety and recovery in the music culture, period. And we're, we're still losing people left and right. So I want to take the rest of the time that we have and talk a little, a little bit about your journey. I'm not going to ask you to tell a bunch of war stories. If you want to, you're more than welcome, but this is more about the here and now. How'd you get here? How do you maintain it? Um... You know, I've been lighting joints up while we're walking around the neighborhood. You don't flinch. You're in the bars and in the clubs with people out of their minds all the time. Uh, it can't be easy. I just want to hear, like, how do you do it? And maybe some folks out there that are listening that are either freshly sober and trying to figure out how do they maintain it, or some folks that might be struggling, that see you about to shoot dead in company, out here working, doing your thing, having lived through the nightmare you lived through, Maybe that'll inspire them to maybe like take that next step. So I want you to share whatever you're comfortable with. Well, first and foremost, um, the reason that I'm open about it isn't to parade it around. It is singularly so that anyone out there that is struggling knows that they're not alone. 
that other that I have you know I have experienced um, maybe what they're going through. Uh, you know, I I love the fact that I get messages from people that I've never met before that want to talk about recovery, uh, especially in the music scene, um, and so it's important to know that 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 you're not alone. Um, and uh, right now, I think that it's you know we're it's just absolutely amazing that we have um, Kindle uh, and uh, and her friends have started Backline, sure, which is uh, a, an industry resource uh, for um, you know uh, people that are struggling with depression or suicidal thoughts, uh, and and that includes recovery. Sure, you know all they of go hand men- in hand. mental health is is an important factor. In, in our our society, but even more so in in the music industry because you know we don't have the same resources that um, a Fortune 500 company is is going to have to offer its employees. You know we're often all subcontractors, you know, and so we're like in essence on our own. Um, and. You know, my story is not much different from a lot of people's stories. You know, there's going to be a lot of similarities between, you know, you brought up Jeffrey and Josh and Aaron. You know, we, we their stories are, are pretty similar to mine in, in a lot of aspects, but yet all different. Right. Um, you know, I've, uh, my life was, was out of control. Um, I, uh had a lot of unmanageability um you know everything was about in ex- excess you know my drug of choice was whatever you had and uh i wanted more of it like it didn't matter you know i uh i used drugs and alcohol to escape my fears to uh you know deal with my struggles in life to celebrate my joys you know everything, and um, I always wanted that kind of escape. Uh, I was maladjusted to life, and uh, it took uh, a long time until I found a way of dealing with all of those things in a manner that didn't include drugs or alcohol. I think one thing that's uh, also uh, important to touch on is that you can go anywhere and do anything when you have the right intentions, when you have the right uh, mindset, you know, when you're emotionally, mentally, um, you know, healthy. And, and it took a long time of, of me building that foundation of my recovery before I started going back to concerts, before I started putting myself in those kind of situations. You know, now when I get in those situations, if I see someone that's out of control, I think, wow, that used to be me. You know, by the grace of God, there go I. Like, that could be me again. And I have to remember that as well. Um... You know, and all of those things contribute to me maintaining, you know, a healthy sobriety today. Uh, 
most of the time when I'm at a show, I'm there to, to photograph it, you right. know, and that gives me a sense of purpose, a sense of being and something to focus on when I'm in those situations. So it's really easy to not let a lot of things like bother you when you're so busy doing something else. But that's not the case for everybody in sobriety. And the great thing about the jam scene is there's such a a, a recovery community. You know, um, vibrant. We've always had the wharf rats. Right. uh, Or always but for many many years there's been the the sober group at grateful dead shows called the wharf rats fish then uh spun their own group off called the fellowship and so many other jam bands have followed suit and that just it's a great support system so beautiful within our scene festivals there are festivals that have sober camping camp traction that have uh tables set up out in you know huluween has the jellyfish that's set up out there in in the meadow field that is a place for people in recovery to to kind of you know to to socialize around yeah uh, it uh, lets people know they're not alone. There's other people just like them sitting right over there at the table. And if they need to go talk to them, they can. At set break, they're going to have a meeting. Yeah, so, those are so awesome when you see those meetings. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of yellow balloon groups. Yeah, yeah. We sat down with some of the old wharf rats at High Sierra last year. Again, more tears. These old sober dudes in their 70s that were like the happiest, highest people at the event yeah there you know what you'll find is uh people in recovery are not a glum lot like (laughs) you know uh it it, most of the time it's people that have learned to love life learn to love themselves learn to love other people in a way that is so beautiful just like you're talking about it's incredible man it really is and you know I, i get a lot of inspiration from you too man for real, I've talked to you for a few years now, and we spent some quality time this week. And uh, I just really think that you set a positive example professionally with how you carry it when you're working, and and what we're talking about now with recovery. And and, and that's an admirable thing when so much of the music culture is is around imbibing. My career relies on my sobriety. Yeah. Without my sobriety, I'm not going to have a career. Or more than that, even. Not only career, you might not have your health, you might not have a lady. There's a lot of things that you're not going to get if you don't have your That has to be first and foremost in my life. But at the same time, I'm I'm very open-minded. You know, just because things don't work for me doesn't mean that it shouldn't or can't work for other people. I'm very pro-legalization. I'm very pro-marijuana. Like, I can't smoke because it doesn't work in my life. Right. But I think that other people should have the opportunity to make that choice for themselves, you know. And I'm not here to tell someone uh, that they have a problem with alcohol. That's not for me to decide. That is an individual right. choice, and each person, um, you know, has to decide, uh, you know, if that is becoming a problem, and you know, they have to decide that they want to do something about it because. Uh, they're the only ones that can change their life. You know, you you can push someone uh, 
you know, in that direction, but you can't make them change their life. You can't make them make that decision. And, and until they do, uh, most people aren't going to grab on to sobriety. They're not going to, you know, be honest with themselves, be honest with other people. They're not going to be open to put in the action. You know, they're not going to be willing to, to, to put in the, the work that it takes to, to get sober, to stay sober, to build that foundation and to, uh, you know, start to learn how to, to live the life that, you know, many of us in recovery have come to know. But before we go uh, on the Up For Life podcast, I like to give everybody an opportunity to let people know how they could see you, how they could see your work, how they could talk to you. So if somebody's interested in checking out your photography, how do they find you? Or if they want to message you about some of the other more personal topics like recovery and such. Just real quick, what are the best ways to get you on social? Yeah, uh, you know, hit me up on on Messenger if you uh, want to dive into any of those more serious topics. Um, definitely if you're interested in checking out my photography, Instagram is, is the place to do that. And you can find me at Keith A. Griner, uh, there on Instagram and, uh, to all of you listening that already do follow me and, and support my art, support my work and my passion, you know, I'm great, greatly appreciative of, of all of that. And, you know, I see you, I see people sharing and liking my work and that means the, the world to me because I put, you know, my, my heart and my soul in, into that work and, and it's my life. Yes, indeedy. want to say thank you to my man, Keith Greiner, for that thoughtful and inspiring conversation from back over New Year's when we could go to live shows and do shit like that. <clears throat> if you want to check out Keith's work or holler at him for any endeavors, uh, check him out at Fierce Photography, Fierce with a PH. There'll be a link in the show notes. Uh, if you made it this far, thank you. This was a really powerful episode that I'm proud to have presented. And we've reached the end of the journey for episode 33. And like we always do about this time, 
the Vibe Junkie Jam of the Week. And I'm going to go with something that resonates deeply within me for so many years. And that is the mighty Alice in Chains uh, from their timeless, iconic swan song at MTV Unplugged. Uh, I want to say it's like 96. It's everything. The whole concert, you could do any, any track from the set. But my personal anthem... Uh, Having lived through the throes, my damn self is called Down in a Hole. The original version is incredible. It's found on the album Dirt, but, you know, Lane is beginning to knock on Heaven's door at the time of this performance. MTV Unplugged, the band hadn't performed together in a couple of years, and uh, Lane Staley's in poor shape, but brings his A-game, as does Jerry, Sean, and Mike. And I wanted to close out this uh, monumental episode with Dave from Dopey Podcast and Keith Greiner and Sometimes It Snows in April with my anthem, Down in a Hole. Uh, You're hearing Brother from the SAP EP, also from that Unplugged. But I'm going to play in its entirety, Down in a Hole, Alice in Chains, MTV Unplugged, and that should uh, sing you back home. For episode 33 of the Up for Life podcast, I want to say thank you for tuning in. Please rate and review on iTunes. Holler at your boy, b.getz at upfullife.com, and we will see you next week. Yes, indeedy. Please.